Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews. Hello there, I'm Aaron Martell. I'm Shannon Fleming. I'm Sam. And I'm The Professor. I'm Lou Figaro. And welcome to Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews, a podcast where we talk about and review a rock album of our choice. On this episode, Sam chose the record we're covering, and we're going to review Pink Floyd's 1979 double album, The Wall. So, Shannon, give us a quick recap of your Pink Floyd story and how you came to The Wall. You know, I'm not entirely sure how I came to the entire album, except that I do remember vividly when we were little kids, when you were living in Cheshire and you had all the foster kids there, um, <laughs> there, there was a foster sister and, you know, forgive me for saying it like this, but there, there was somebody in the house. Her name was Kathy Callahan and she liked the album and she used to play um, Comfortably Numb. No shit. And I, yeah. You didn't know that, did no, you? No, no. So anyway, that's she would play the album and that song would come on and I immediately like, you know, tuned into it. And I was little. I mean, I must have been like, you know, what, eight or nine? Hmm. I was probably about nine. And I was like, whoa, this is really cool. And so that was my intro. But later on, what happened was, you know, I became a teenager and then I remember going out with my friends and there was like mother. And we all went out and Oh my God, all of my friends in high school, we, we were all were like this pool hall and my friend Donnie puts, puts, he puts in, he actually, for whatever reason, the entire album of the wall is like there and he puts in mother and, I, and we're all high as shit. And we're like, Oh yeah, this is really cool. <laughs> it's great. It's so good. And then like skip again forward. I'm hanging out with a girlfriend, like right before I get married. And she's like, okay, let's, you know, let's, let, let's watch the movie. And I'm like, I've never seen the movie before. We put it on and she and I just sat there with our eyes <laughs> open going, why are they grinding the children? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's, that's my intro. All right. Sam, this was your baby. What do you say? Man, I, I, I think I, I classified parts of my life through music and when I'm introduced to them, because I can remember a lot of first times I've, I've listened, I've heard things. And I remember understanding that my dad loved Pink Floyd more than any other band. He took me to uh, Kmart and went in and left me in the truck. <laughs> went in. Well, you're allowed to do that. <laughs> yeah, it was like 1980. I was a little kid, man. I was, you know, just like five or six. And uh, he goes into the Kmart and comes out a few minutes later with uh, two A-tracks and puts them in his Craig radio uh, A-track player in his uh, C10 Chevy. Too cool. <laughs> Step side, baby. And uh, Dad would let me go out and play this. You know, he let me, uh, you know, crank it and, you know, back it up sometimes. But he let me go out there and play it and listen to uh, Pink Floyd, The Wall on 8-Track. Sure, he was looking out the window, but he would. And I would sit there and listen to both 8-Tracks. And so this this album is in this is my DNA. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's been there all the time. Professor Permi. Uh, I was in the eighth grade when this one was released. So we don't need no education song swept through like wildfire over dried Kindle that fall in early winter. Uh, the mantra t- took deep root in junior high school, so much so that the school 
actually had it banned from playing on school grounds. This was the dawn of the boombox time, too. So I had a small black Magnavox boombox myself, powered by four heavy D batteries. I remember lugging that thing around, that I would escape the day while riding the bus to and from school, playing half a dozen of these albums. And this was one of them, along with uh, the Who's Kids Are All Right, Zeppelin's In Through the Outdoor, and Rush's Permanent Waves. I was the uh, Ray Permi, the school bus DJ. (laughs) That's too cool. Yeah. Floyd appealed to me because of their distinctive artwork in their albums and that blend of musicianship and intelligence and art that was not so over-the-top theatrics. It was dynamic without being cheesy. And The Wall was my gateway to their music, causing me to go back in their catalog, first with Dark Side, then Animals, which is my personal favorite, then Metal, and Wish You Were Here was the last one that I got into with them. All right. Lou, I think this is your first uh, time with us with Pink Floyd, right? Yeah. Where do you come in? Uh, I already knew about Pink Floyd since I was like a toddler. Dark Side of the Moon was played in my house. I bought Wish You Were Here brand new. And for the first few years of owning that record, I think I bought it in 1975. Uh, I had no idea what the cover looked like because I never took the the plastic off of it. And it was in that black plastic. (laughs) So it was like a brand new record for me in like 1979 when it finally friggin' ripped off. So when the wall came out, I didn't even need to hear anything from it to know it had to be in my collection. And I was at an age where we were just starting to discover smoking weed and beer in the woods and stuff. And uh, I had this. Same here. Exactly. And and I think I was in like seventh or eighth grade. It was 1980. So I had the the exact same boombox, I guess. Well, no, mine took 10 10 D cells. It was a JVC. Oh it was oh oh, it was massive. It had a shoulder strap for it. I you had like, like that though. <laughs> I worked all summer for that friggin' thing. This is the album that finally brought me to Pink Floyd. Uh, for most of my life, this to me it was just a boring druggy band, one of a handful of oversaturated classic rock bands that when their songs came on the radio, I changed the station. And I had friends who were really into them. Shout out again to Dave Spila. Sister Shannon tried to get me into them, but no fucking way. <laughs> and then about 10 years or so ago, I saw this album, the CD of it. It was on sale, I think, at like a Best Buy. Or no, it might have even been like a Walmart or some, some shit like that. And I don't know what possessed me. But I just decided I was ready to give it an open-minded, honest try. Because, you know, I knew plenty of songs off it from the radio. So I bought it. And that's how I came to The Wall. Now I'll give you some basic facts about this record, depending on how factual the Wikipedia entry of it is. The Wall is the 11th studio album by English rock band Pink Floyd, released on November 30th, 1979 on Harvest Records in the UK and Columbia Records in the US. It was produced by Bob Ezrin, David Gilmore, James Guthrie, and Roger Waters, and was recorded from December 1978 to November 1979 at Britannia Row Studios, London, England, Super Bear Studios, Nice, France, Miraval Studios, Corrins, France, 30th Street Studio, New York City, New York, and the Producers Workshop, Los Angeles, California. If I mispronounced anything, I apologize. It reached number three on the UK Albums Chart and number one on the US Billboard 200 Chart, 
and is certified three times platinum by the BPI and 23 times platinum by the RIAA. And here's the band's lineup card. We have Roger Waters on vocals, bass guitar, synthesizer, acoustic guitar, and electric guitar. David Gilmour on vocals, electric and acoustic guitars, bass guitar, synthesizer, clavinet, and percussion. Nick Mason on drums and percussion. Richard Wright on acoustic and electric pianos, Hammond organ, synthesizer, clavinet, and percussion. There are additional musicians, which we'll mention as we see fit. All right, let's get into a track-by-track analysis of this album. We start with Disc 1, Side 1, with In the Flesh, written by Roger Waters. Shannon, what do you think? I think, well, it's, you know, it's a typical Pink Floyd intro. Everything comes in very slowly and you're wondering what the hell is going on. And I love the the different, you know, the instrumentation. And it does seem incredibly like, you know, like everything that they do, it's, it's very, I don't know, how do I describe it? It's like 1927. Um, again, I, I, sometimes I think about movies when I, well, and they did have a movie, but when I think about this, I think about like um, Metropolis, like we're coming into that type of era for, for the band even. And it, it seems kind of like, you know, ominous and it's, it's just kind of haunting and interesting. Film noir kind of. Yes, exactly. And that's the way that I feel about it. And, and you know that something is coming. It's, it just feels, and that's what they're great about. You know that something is really going to be like coming up and you just, but you're, you're still like at the seat of your pants. And this might be one of the reasons why they actually had a film because they could do it, you know, instrumentally, but you could have such a visual, no matter what, you could visually see it. You know, on the screen or it was in your mind. It's incredible. It, it, it's incredible. Am I the only one disappointed by the film? Uh, well, no, I, I, no. I was disturbed by it. <laughs> and, I thought the, and I thought the cartoonistry was really quite interesting. I mean, I did because, you know, a lot of artwork today reflects to it. But I found it really like it just seems so violent to me. Mm-hmm. If, if that's the right word I can use. And I know I'm not being very, you know, elegant or eloquent about this, but that's how I feel about it. Oh, it's violent for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's how I feel about the intro. Sam, how about you? You thought you might like go to the show, feel the warmth of the space cadet glow, but you really don't want to come to see this show because this guy's going to have a fucking meltdown uh, beyond any other meltdown you've ever heard before. You can see it coming. Yeah, it's very theatrical. I, I love the way that he does that. And it's uh, with, before the movie, you know, when I saw the movie, I was in high school. But uh, before the movie, I always thought that he was like, you know, I, I imagined him at, at the podium, I believe. Maybe maybe I'm misremembering this. But 
Yeah, it feels like that. It's like the the, the master of ceremonies type of thing, you know. Uh, he's yeah, gonna, better said. Yes. It's also like an overture, and he's going to put out some themes out here that's going to go through the album. We'll see later, but I think uh, bringing it in this way, you know, some of Roger's genius the way, and you know, like, like he did animals, you know, he like opened and closed the record on the same type of theme, and uh, he's going to have a theme running all the way through this one. Which well, again, is, ominous. Yes, yeah. agreed. There's yeah. a theme, and it's ominous. You know it going through it. Yeah, it's like Jesus. Yeah, and you could kind of feel like uh, listening to it now, as opposed to back when I was like obsessed with it. Uh, I can see what he's trying to do a little more, and he's trying to you know open up the uh, a records like this is my masterpiece, and you're going to have to deal with it, uh, whether you like it or not, and. Um, and we have, but I, I love the lyrics. Tell me something. Is this not what you expect to see? If you want to find out what's behind these cold eyes, you'll just have to claw your way through this disguise. That is fucking brilliant. And Rogers, always, with the exception of pros and cons, he's always been a great lyricist. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I'm, well, I think this is a banger. Professor. Well, okay. The wall was conceived during the 1977 in the flesh tour which is an interesting name for a tour he actually was talking about building a wall between himself and the audience in 75 but uh 77 is pretty much the turning point for him uh waters began to exhibit increasingly aggressive behavior and would often scold disruptive audiences who lit off fireworks and yelled and screamed during the quieter numbers of his show this was interesting because floyd was such a big band but they didn't play big stadiums this was the first tour that they ever really did that. They played to like 87,000 people in Montreal, which was actually more than the closing ceremonies of the Olympics just a few months earlier. So they were kind of lost. And this was also the time of fireworks going off and being chucked at, at bands on stage. Skinner talked about it. Zeppelin talked about it. The Stones talked about it. It, it was just something that happened. I'm sure it scared the shit out of somebody to be up there playing a solo and have an M80 go off, you know, 10 feet from them. But apparently... Roger was always the target for the uh, for when Floyd played. I bet. <laughs> and um, Snowy White said it was a very weird vibe at this concert, and he was just used to doing his job. But it was interesting to look across the stage and see Roger spitting at the guy in the front because he spat on one of the fans that had chucked a firework, screamed during a, a number, and then he was right in front of the stage. And he was trying to climb up on the stage, and as as the bodyguards were grabbing him, Roger spat in his face. You know, so that's just a nice thing to do. So in other words, Roger was really slowly losing it. Yes. Um, this incident is often described as the spark that inspired the wall, uh, even by Roger himself. But it's simply not true. If anything, merely further emphasized what he'd already been feeling for a few years. He was just really tired of the people coming to the show that, like I said before, they were they would play smaller, smaller venues and they attracted a certain a certain fan base, a really dedicated fan base that wanted to listen and wanted to see the light show and wanted to experience all of Floyd. And then here comes 77 and everybody just wants to go to the show and feel the warmth of the love confusion and space cadet glow. They don't want anything really to do with the music. They just want to be part of the event. And that's what's kind of interesting about how this song started, the title of the song, how it started off, what had happened. And then uh, I also found it pretty interesting that the band never played a song from Animals again. <laughs> it's got that circular track. I don't know if you guys know about this, but 
it starts off with that little chatter that the way that Floyd always does with with a lot of their albums, particularly with Dark Side of the Moon. Yes. And it's, it starts it's a sentence that's actually started in the last song of this album and then finishes in the first song of this album. Yes. And it's the isn't this where we came in? Yeah. You can play it on a loop. Yeah. Oh, I just I love the bombastic drums and the opening chords. It's a song is brief, but it shows Roger's disregard or Roger's regard or disregard for large audiences and what and what brought them to the show. It's a glimpse that he's protecting himself, shielding and separating his true self from his rock star persona. That's what I think of this tune. Lou, your thoughts. Well, this is nothing like animals. Or wish you were here or dark side. It sounds like satanic doo-wop. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> I have to use that term. <laughs> I love it. So you thought you'd like to go to the show. The MC does sound a little crazed. This is not what you expected to see. No, it's not. It's very different from what I was expecting. It ends up sounding like the ending of a... a fucking who show by the end of this <laughs> planes are crashing the hell of an intro or an overture i think that, that was mentioned before to the play or opera that we're gonna witness <laughs> boom this is gonna be a hell of a ride when i first heard this i was surprised as i didn't know pink floyd could get this heavy I didn't know squat about their catalog at the time. I, I dig the main theme with David Gilmore's thunderous guitars, Nick Mason pounding the drums and Fred Mandel on the Hammond organ. And then Roger Waters basically welcomes us to the album and the show. And what else we got here? Six, eight time signatures, Stuka dive bombers, doo-wop harmonies, including Tony Tennille on vocals, stage directions. Love ain't going to keep us together on this one, folks. This could get interesting. <laughs> Tony Tennille, like definitely. That. It is definitely <laughs> satanic doo-wop. Stop hubby. Satan herself right there. The next track is The Thin Ice, written by Roger Waters. Super listener, Sam, your thoughts? Oh, man. Uh, after the last song, uh, you, you come into this, and it brings you down. It's like it comes into the, and then Gilmore's plan has that delay D note. It's going to be all the way through here. Ray Z, this is the easiest mouth guitar that I've ever done. That's for you. I love you, Ray Z. Anyways, but yeah, it brings that theme in, you know, that's going to run through the album. Like, you know, I said before, it shows up in these songs and I feel like I have to point it out. But then that, you know, it comes up and there's like, 
I think of a little baby crying. I mean, he, he plays it for you. I mean, Roger does it all the time. But then oh, man, he, well, the really dark. soft, the really soft, you know, piano, and it's really beautiful, you know, and you go, ooh, ooh baby, that's fucking gorgeous, man. And that challenge anyone that says a, that's not gorgeous. It's like uh, it brings you down. It takes you away from the tension that was in the first song and then brings you to, okay, oh, man, this is so pretty. And then it, mm-hmm, ooh, baby. If you should go skating on the thin ice of life, dragging behind you a sound records over a million tear-stained eyes. So he's like a, like the, like the guys, you know. And he he's the man, and he's looking out at all these damn people that are watching him play, and they're all crying. And it's very pretentious because he brought in Bob Ezrin, by the way. Then it goes into this fucking badass, almost Sabbathy riff. Went down, 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 down. And Nick Mason slams into that shit, man. And then uh, David Gilmore does that fucking feel that he's going to do for the rest of the album. I'm, I'm sure you guys know what I'm talking about. Yes, that, that one. <laughs> Let's just refer to that as the Gilmore hose. <laughs> I wanted to do it. I, I, I really did want to do it like 17, 18 times during this podcast. I, honestly, if you don't mind, <laughs> he's this. Is, I know this is kind of supposed to be a filler song, but it's great, man. It's got great guitars from David Gilmore, and it's got great fucking lyrics from Roger Waters. It's setting up the next song. A lot of these songs coming are going to be setting up the next song, but this is one of the best ones that does that. No doubt. You know what I mean. <laughs> I mean, it oh could have it, it been, been a better. It would have been a better play than a movie. Yeah, it would have been a better play. <laughs> and I'm from Alabama. I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but it would have been. Uh, uh, trust me. But yeah, it's another banger, man. I love it. I do not skip it. It's a great song. Prof. Okay, it starts off with the baby crying. Mama loves her baby, and Daddy loves you too. Baby Pink is born, whose name we're not properly introduced to until the second In the Flesh, if memory served. That's like the second LP on the end of side three or side four, right. way back yep. when. The lullaby continues with the sea may look warm to you, babe, and the sky may look blue. But, oh, babe, I can't, I'm not going to sing that. But, damn, that is a massive earworm for me, the lyrics and the music of that. So I'm glad you said what you said, Sam. That is beautiful. So it's and caring it's like a mother again mm-hmm. it's the it's a, it's a lullaby yeah it's exactly. a lullaby to a brand new baby it's, you, it's, you have it's, it you know we're, we're all parents you have, you exactly. have your kids and you, you want to see you want the best for, for life for them and, and this is right. kind of like a, a warning song you know if you should go well, skating on the thin ice of modern life you it know, is look what, except, look what can happen to you right so, except the problem with this song is it's, it kind of represents like the overture, the intro. Like I said before, there's an ominous feel. You know that she is something, somehow something not right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you well, you haven't I figured mean? that out yet, but yeah, it's there. So, but she's starting off it's as a there. brand new parent, you know, it's and they, they love their new little baby pink. And then, you know, they're, they're saying, don't, you know, don't go skating on the thin ice of modern life because look what can happen to you mentally, like if you become a rock star. Dragging behind you the silent reproach of a million tear-stained eyes, you can get the silent dip- disapproval of all your screaming fans that you're screaming at to listen to your music. Hello, Roger. 
Don't be surprised when the crack in the ice appears under your feet. You slip out of, you slip out of your depth and out of your mind with your fear flowing out behind you as you claw the thin ice. Takes a little bit of a sinister turn there with don't be surprised if you are quickly overwhelmed and turned into a paranoid person clutching at fame. Right. It's a good little warning song. It's kind of like be careful what you wish for because you may just get it and it's going to be a lot more than what you bargained for. And that's what this song kind of sets up for me. Lou. Pink Floyd. <laughs> you always counted on them to <laughs> give you the weird shit. <laughs> this is some weird shit. <laughs> After that whole explosion thing, the creepy baby crying just sends chills down my back. The fighter plane crashes and the baby's born and the story's afoot. Modern life. It's like walking on thin ice. Pretty good metaphor. It's a warning about the perils and fragility of, of life. It's a big, scary, dangerous, fucked up place. Be careful and don't get hurt. This is one of those songs now that's just ruined by that horrible, horrible movie that Bob Geldof uh, started. <laughs> Thank God you said it was horrible because I hated it. Oh my it. God, it's awful. Because that's all I could picture now while, while this well, is on. It's interesting. <laughs> Shannon. Um, again, I, I kind of go back with these guys. Um, it, it's all of what they just described. I do see that sunny side of birth. Again, I'm a mother. I know exactly. It's like, holy crap, it's amazing. And all the fears. And, you know, oh, my God, real fear of what's going to ha- – you're responsible for a new life. What are you going to do with this child? But the thing that really comes into mind, how I connect with this, is that this mother, there is something wrong in her head. It's not the normal ki- t- type of mom whose kid is – you know, might, you know, go skating and crack through the ice. It's the kind of mom who's like, you can't go skating out there because you will crack through the ice. That type yeah. of thing. There's a difference. Somebody shut that kid up. Who the fuck names their kid Pink anyway? I know. <laughs> hey, there's Richard Wright tickling the ivories and playing organ as if he was a member of this band or something. Hey, he's actually on this fucking album. I do love Gilmore's gentle vocals. Ooh, we've already Sam, you already did. I don't need to do it again. And I do like the contrast of his voice with Waters' more gruff voice. And again, I dig the heavy electric section which reminds me a little bit of In the Flesh, but it probably has a lot to do with the fact that it's also in 6-8 time, and it also apes that, ooh, the guitar apes that, and I really like that. I really do dig this track, but like you guys, I saw the Wall movie for the very first time about a week and a half ago. I already told a couple of you guys that, and it's fucking awful. (laughs) But I really dig this track, and uh, let's go, fellas. The Wall ain't gonna build itself. The following track is Another Brick in the Wall, Part 1, written by Roger Waters. Daddy, what else did you leave for me? Prof, lead us off. 
Well, here we get a true autobiographical glimpse into Roger Waters. Lieutenant Eric Fletcher Waters, who died when his son was only five months old. He was killed in a ditch at 11.30 a.m. on February 18, 1944, in Aparilla, Anzio, Italy, after his company was surrounded during stiff fighting. His body was never found, because I am a research guru. Uh, <laughs> I know you are, man. I love it. Um, in 2013, Rogers, Roger Waters said he was, quote, I was very angry uh, about never knowing his father because he was missing in action, presumed dead. And until quite recently, I expected him to come home. That's pretty telling. His father was a religious Christian and a pacifist during the early years of World War II. He was exempted from military service as a conscientious objector, and he served as an ambulance driver in Cambridge. He later became close to the left of the Labour Party and engaged more and more in politics until he finally joined the British Communist Party and became an ardent anti-fascist. He began to reconsider his choices to serve actively in the war. He uh, enlisted in the British Army as a second lieutenant in the 8th Battalion Royal Fusiliers. I can never say that. Fusiliers. Fusiliers. Yeah, and he was an officer in Z Company. He joined the Army and he was killed just months later. Obviously, this left an indelible mark on Roger, loss of a parent being a child, going to school feeling different, isolated by circumstances, Othered, in a sense, if you understand what that means, it's led to isolation and being an intelligent boy. It led him to developing some emotional and mental coping mechanisms. It's kind of where this, all the, that's all the lyrics of this one just point to me. Everybody's just a brick in the wall. Everything that happens to him, he's just like, I'm just going to have an arm's length on everything. So he just, he just didn't fit in. You could tell he didn't, you know, and if you see him when he's in some of those videos, when he's really young, you can tell he was one awkward dude. But that's what I have for this song. I'm all, I'm all, I'm not really going too deep into the music of everything that they did because you guys are going to do that better than me. But I, the psychology behind what these lyrics are saying—that's really what interests me. Lou, the imagery of snapshots and the the dynamics of the music—it kind of paints a picture in your head. That was mentioned before too. Um, the imagery that you get just listening to it in stereo and headphones, you know, with, with speakers around you. This is really character development of the story. I love the way that the steady pulsing kind of rhythm that he does and a bluesy lead doesn't have to be really complex to be absolute perfection. Gilmore adds just enough Gilmore sauce and flavor to keep you coming back. You know, he's got the, you know, the Gilmore hose and, you know, he's just kind of got it on steady drip right now that kind of it's, it's perfect. And it's what this song needs. Shannon. Well, uh, again, I mean, we're coming back to all of, you know, usually I'm starting out with all this stuff, but you know, if you think about like all the imagery, it's just that we're leading into this, this child who's com- who becomes completely manipulated by his own mind, if you will, because we, we do that. We come through our own back doors. We know exactly what, what is what, but somehow there's this creeping like thought that comes through the back and it's like, Oh man, but what about what mom thinks? And what about, you know, what happened with dad and things like that? Yeah. And he's got to reconcile all this in his head. He's exactly. got to come to terms with how, how he can make sense of this and move on. And still protect himself. As a child. And that's incredibly mm-hmm. difficult to do. So you can see the mindset. And, you know, we, we give a lot of shit to the film. 
But even in the film, you can kind of see it in the artistry. It's like a, it's like child. It's like a kid who's trying to work their way through it. That little it's Damien character. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's messed up, but it is an essence. I mean, it's a kid. Again, it's welcome to the world. Hope you cope. Hope you got a decent family. Make your way through. You're going to have to do the best you can. And, you know, and you can see the musicians, especially Waters, as we've talked about extensively, he had to like really, really reconcile. Who knows? Someone check Pink's head for 666. Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I like the line uh, when he goes, Daddy, what'd you leave behind for me? I think that's so powerful because mm-hmm. he never knew his dad. I mean, I was lucky. I guess I'm assuming we were all lucky to know our, know our fathers, even if they were an asshole. My dad's not an asshole. What I'm, what I'm saying is he didn't get a chance to even know his father. So it's powerful to, to know. I feel, I feel like my, my dad is an old man now and I still think he can kick my ass. You know what I mean? There's a reverence there for him. And, of course. Uh, even though he cusses worse than I do. And, but uh, he didn't get that. And I feel bad for him. If he wasn't such an asshole, I would feel worse for him. He's not a nice person. And I, I, I get it, you know, in a, you know, and he grew up in the obliterated England after World War II without his father. I'm sure he went to some fu- fucking schools that weren't very nice to him. All of them did. What I really liked, though, is that he wrote it down and that he uh, documented it. And I think it's just it's significant. And I think that's one of the reasons that one of Pink Floyd fans uh, appreciate this record. In the late 70s, uh, it was a different time and everything. But this guy was still being, you know, uh, I don't know. Hey, don't forget this. Later on, we'll see some things uh, in the record that, uh, you know, point to this. It's like, you better not forget this shit happened. You know, and he references his dad flying across the ocean. You know, he didn't fly across the ocean. He, he flew across the... Call past- it a metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's beautiful. It's fucking beautiful. I think it's it cathartic. Is. I think, I think yeah. Roger, Roger used this as a, as a sort of cathartic, cathartic kind yeah. of therapy for him to deal with some yeah, of his issues. When I he agree. The band. So. He says, leaving just a memory. Mm-hmm. And Gilmore just... Oh, I love that shit. Man, this is fucking powerful, and it's what it's doing is now it's building. Okay, he he hits you hard at the front of the record, and now he's bringing you down into where now he's going to take you through some shit. We're about to go through some shit. Disco Floyd, well, not quite, but it's coming, and it's in there faintly with this first part with the floating, echoed, and delayed guitar notes. What are we saying? The Gilmore hose and gloomy keyboard atmospherics. Roger, I mean, Pink's dad died in the war, giving us some nice foundational bricks for the wall. So let's keep building. The next track is The Happiest Days of Our Lives, written by Roger Waters. Yeah. 
Lou, start us off. Oh, there's a lot of venom here. And I understand it. I went through the public school system. I was in five high schools in four years. There, there you go. And there I go. Um, that's what makes this a, such a successful story and, and record. It's a relatable story. It's, it's like universal experiences make it profound. Everybody's got their own story that they can kind of relate to this album with and what, what Pink's going through. I can imagine there was corporal punishment where, where he was, especially back then in school. They weren't allowed to hit us in public school by then, but they, they broke us down by the being sarcastic assholes. Mm. Uh, Agreed. You know, I mean, look at the movie. If, if I got to bring it up, you know, with the poems, everybody poems, but it's true. And, and, I mean, that a lot of American life was like that, too, when you grow up in middle school or whatever, especially as, you know, as a middle school male. Especially when you say middle school. Yes. All, all your friends, even, besides your teachers or whatever. Well, you know, teachers weren't supposed to do it, but your friends, that's why men are dying. It's, it's the Bill Burr bit. Where that's why why men are dying at at fifty, you know, and and having heart attacks and stuff because they're pushing all their emotions down because you know fear of getting made fun. Oh look, he's a fairy. He likes flowers. It's you know, and so, you know, you push that farther down, and next thing you know, you're, you're yeah. dead. Yes, it, it, it's uh, it's kind of sad. These guys, they kind of thrived on it. They did it for sport. It made them feel better about themselves and, you know, what little control they had outside of that classroom. It, it kind of makes you sick. And, you know, if it did happen to them. Yeah. Powerful, powerful tune. Shannon. Well, I kind of agree. You know, oh, no, I, I totally agree with that, with the venomousness. It's like, you know, you're, you're transitioning at this point and his met his middle school metaphor was really appropriate because you know what? Believe it or not, girls go through that as well. It's so weird because you have cliques suddenly and they're putting down other girls and blah, blah, blah. And they have crushes on the boys. Everything is, your hormones are raging and you're Puberty transitioning. Sucks. Puberty does suck. suck. <laughs> it absolutely does. You Just are under this microscope. Well, not only that, but you're, be, you're, be, you're, not a, you're not a kid and you're still not an adult. You are somewhere in limbo. And it's a very confusing time. And I think that's where all the warring comes from. And I think this is where that song comes from as well. I do think that Waters really does tap in deeply to his childhood and his memories about his loss and how it was about to, you know, evolve, if you will. I mean, I think he even had, you know, foreboding thoughts about his evolution at this stage. And I know that sounds like a powerful statement because, I mean, that's that's a lot coming from a kid. But as a writer reflecting on it, I don't know. Maybe he did feel that way. Sam. Man, I went to a Catholic school in a very conservative, old-fashioned state. And uh, the Catholic Church is even more conservative and old-fashioned than that. So, yeah, man, uh, I got slapped a little bit in fifth grade a couple times. <laughs> Christ. <laughs> yeah. Well, they sent me to a Catholic school because uh, I don't know. They were grooming me for to to be one of those little bitch boys, but they never 
uh, touched me, but I guess I wasn't good looking enough. <laughs> Anyways, holy cow! <laughs> you know, I was working the streets. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Getting confused about oh, this now. There were certain too. It would fuck with the children any way they could. That's true. That's still true. Yes. Before all the bullshit any way they could and tearing their dreams away, it still happens. So there's going to be more kids going to you know, find this song because it's on the radio all the fucking time. And uh, they're going to uh, say, hey, man, I like Pink Floyd because all they're doing is like, we don't need a. Like, this is the song before that, but. This was a like a rebellious as fuck song if you were a kid at that time. I mean, I was the early eighties. I already knew about Pink Floyd because my dad was Pink Floyd, and so I was the guy that was passionate. It's like, hey man, you ever heard this? We don't need no education shit. That was that was me, and that, that's so uh, maybe in a way it's my fault that it's overplayed so fucking much. <laughs> it was probably overplayed then. All my friends, you know, it's like, yeah, we don't need no education shit. Anyway, happy stage of our life. Uh, yeah, yeah. Ray P. This is one of my favorite bass lines ever recorded that starts this song off. From the intro to how it propels the song along, this is just money. Going into the lyrics, when we grew up and went to school, there were certain teachers who would hurt the children any way they could. Not exactly the best way for creating the most trusting of students. Teachers who mocked and humiliated students. Uh, is it just me, or does that sound like the Socratic method of teaching? Hmm. That's what they do in the Socratic method. They just You either know the answer, and you're sure of it, or you will be humiliated. I just thought it was kind of funny how this was uh, the teachers got theirs in the end, but in town it was well known that, that when they got home at night, their fat and psychopathic pathic wives would thrash them within inches of their lives. I think that's just a great line. <laughs> Especially how he says they're fat, psychopathic wise. The way he says it, it's just awesome. Uh, you know what? But, Everybody's got a dark side that they have to let go. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. He lets it go. Fat. Yeah, it was just said. They, they had no control over the rest of the, anything outside of the classroom. And in the classroom, they ruled it like tyrants. But, Again, a child's perspective. It's interesting. And I bet that is how they saw it. And it was probably quite accurate. They probably really saw it. <laughs> yeah, it's funny to me that this song paints a worse picture of education than the than the next song. It really does. So, so this is basically an intro to another Brick Part Two, and it's also the bridge from Part One to Part Two. So watch out! The schoolmaster sees you, and he's got a helicopter. So don't try anything funny. The drums and bass evoke even more of a disco flavor with co-producer James Guthrie playing the hi-hat, including those chokes, which are really cool. School sucks, don't it, Pink? These teachers are mean, insufferable pricks. And on classic rock radio, this track's often played together with the following track, so it comes across as one track. And that following track is Another Brick in the Wall, Part 2, written by Roger Waters.
Shannon, how about this one? Oh my God. <laughs> it does get kind of disco-y. You know what? And the baseline is kind of like a straight, like, you know, you can feel it like it's coming on. And do you know what I love about this is the way that, that they, they can sing. They don't sing it like, you know, if you've heard a lot of British singers sing, they don't sound like anything other than just singing. These kids sound like they're singing like they're, they are totally like, you know, Oliver, you know, <laughs> may I have some more, please? That's pretty good. You know, or can I have some more, please? That type of thing. I mean, it's like, it's so, I don't know. It's incredibly vulnerable. It's so English. It's so British. It yes. really is English. Yes. Agreed. So like a cock, cockney. I don't know the, the how you say it, but you know what I'm talking about? That country. Well, it, it well, don't forget they have different accents even in their own yeah. country. Yeah. yeah, they do. Yeah. Uh, like so we cock, do here. Cockney's like slang. Slang yes, of okay. course. Okay, my bad. Exactly, the, like you know, really posh and proper. Yeah, these speaking. guys are not at all. These little yeah. kids. He does that are too. Perfectly poor. <laughs> or they're perfectly middle class, is my mm -hmm. guess. Middle class to lower class, is my very, guess. Very East Anglia, which is where yeah. Rogers from. So Absolutely. Cambridge. Absolutely. And that. So. Yeah, so it's not going to be like Eliza Doolittle. You know what I mean? Well, it is Eliza Doolittle who, before she meets like the professor. I'm sorry. No, no pun intended. But still, you know, it's it's that kind of thing. And it's like, holy shit, this is like quite an intro coming on. You know, there is like this jazzy like feel this electricity in the air of like the kids who are fucking sick of shit. They hate they hate school. They hate being like restricted. They don't want to do anything. To, they, they want nothing to do with it. It's really interesting. And the story builds. Again, it is, it is a story about one's childhood. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that's how he felt. Isn't it interesting that he called the last song the happiest days of our lives, that we're not Isn't really it? happy at all? So, yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, you know, maybe in his mind it could have been, because you know what happens later on. Sam. I totally get why this is one of their probably most popular songs. I get it. Uh, I, I totally get the disco feel. It's just like, it's the same way as like, I was made for loving you from kiss. You know, you hear it all the fucking time. You still hear it all the fucking time. So I got some ear burn for this. However, it's got some damn good guitars in it. Um, David Gilmore is about to take off in this record. The solo. It's so beautiful. Oh, the solo is awesome. It is. It's the guitar it solo. Is. That's what makes this song, and this is why I still let it play. Oh, see, for me, it's the kids. Really? <laughs> no. It is. I, 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 like, I was, damn it. I, I don't like the kids. I don't want the kids in there. It's like, <laughs> no, 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 I love that part. Prof. This is the anthem of every student in middle school and high school and the bane of every educator since 1979. The previous song was Roger slash Pink recalling his likely difficult educational environment, scholastically and socially. This is a raw nerve revealing how he summed up his experiences as just more bricks in his self-preservation through isolation. That's this song to me, along with the little Canterbury choir that sings. Creepily. 
with great accents. Little, little, <laughs> little hideous little English children. Little baggy eyes. Poor, poor English children. <laughs> Please, sir, could I have some more? Lou. Just a mere pittance. <laughs> Just a morsel. Please, sir. Actually, I saw something about that where there was a thing about that where, like, they got in trouble. A music teacher brought them over to, about to record, and they didn't get any kind of permission slips or anything. They never got paid. They finally did get paid after a lawsuit and something else. But uh, yeah, no, there was a thing mm-hmm. about this. It was, uh, there, and there was a doc about it too. On I, I don't know. I saw it on YouTube probably. Holy yeah, shit! It was, it was, a, it was a. a some the London Boys Choir or something that came it, in. Something, yeah. And they specifically picked them because they sounded Cockney like that, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, yeah, that's yeah. What they wanted, <laughs> yeah. The lower class, holy shit! And right. they really like they they were the Oliver kids, <laughs> right? I mean, well, you know, we've gone, into Ken, we've gone into Dickensian shit now. All right, no doubt, right? <laughs> oh, I was all about this when it was new. I, I cranked this out of my 10D battery JVC boombox, smoking weed, drinking beer in the woods. Little did I know it was fucking disco. It was they, they fooled me into it. This was our battle cry as middle schoolers. Again, Gilmore delivers at the end that perfect solo, perfect tone on this perfect recording. If you don't eat your meat... You can't have any pudding. How can you have any pudding if you don't eat your meat? The next track is Mother, written by Roger Waters. Super listener Sam, lead us off. Uh, I love this song, truly and deeply. This is one of my favorite Pink Floyd songs. <laughs> it's that good. <laughs> it's that good. Um, cause my mom's gone now. You know, it didn't hit me at the time. You know, when I was like in high school or trying to write for the paper, covering this record. It was uh, later when she died, and. Uh, Remembering her as like mother, do you think I'm good enough? It fucking kills me, man. Even listening this past week or so, it, that uh, it it kind of hits me a little bit, man. Uh, I can't help it. I, I'm not ashamed of it or anything, but it's a fucking great song. And that goddamn solo, David Gilmore is doing. Oh, it's gorgeous. It is beautiful. Shit, this fucking solo. I'm Dad, this is so fucking brilliant. He comes through the whole fucking width of the musical availability there. He went through simply and elegantly, and it, it sounds so good. 
Fucking David Gilmore on this record. It's a star. And Roger Waters should kiss David's ass because it made a, the, the masterpiece. Without David Gilmore, you would not have this masterpiece. Professor. <laughs> I just love the way that starts. Uh, okay, this song always hits me kind of weird because I have a very vivid memory that has been forever attached to it. A year or two after this album was released, the boy who lived behind me, who was slightly older than me but in the same grade, he passed away. He was for a time my best friend growing up. He had muscular dystrophy, and at first he could walk, and then his walk grew more and more awkward until he was wheelchair-bound sometime around the fifth or sixth grade. We both moved on to junior high school, and he started going to a different school, one that suited his needs. We grew apart, and along the way, it's just the way kids do. I'd see him, and we'd wave or nod at each other, but we really didn't talk. I remember one night seeing an ambulance at his house late, late. The lights dancing around my bedroom was what got my attention. I looked out the window. The next day, I was walking home from junior high. Um, his brother was driving by, and he told me he had passed away. I just remember that it really hit me weird. His mother, as you can imagine, was devastated and suddenly without a direction. She was always by his side, always helping him. He became her life. She was basically a shell. She broke down soon after he passed away when she came over to visit my mother. I don't know why she came to our house, but she did. She was recounting to my mother how she had caught herself hurrying home from the funeral home after she had picked out his casket because she had to prepare his lunch. And that blew my mind when I heard that story. I was just like, yeah, that would freak me out too. So we all went to the funeral, which was like in October or early November. And at the cemetery, it was a chilly, gray, overcast day. He was buried in a very large Catholic cemetery that just goes on for miles and miles. There was an icy light rain as we pulled away. I was in a car with my brother and our other two neighbors, the oldest, which could already drive. He was like 17 at the time. And as soon as we were in the car, days that we just, you know, left the funeral from the first person that we knew that was kind of our age that passed away. Jeff, who's the driver, he turned the radio on. And the first thing we heard was this song, Mother came on right with the exhale oh, man. and everything and it's just been frozen in my mind ever since but okay on to the song the song is about pink's relationship with his overbearing overprotective mother she's not gonna let anything or anyone hurt her baby boy he's all she has left in this world and he will always be her baby boy they have kind of like a love-hate relationship um the the end of it where he says mother didn't need need to be so high. A 13, 14 year old me took that as an obvious drug reference, but I've come to understand that line as, as his mother's ridiculously high standards for him. That's how I feel about that too, exactly. Which he's right. never gonna be able to live up to. And he's gonna love yes. her and hate her for it. I didn't think about that even then. No, I knew exactly what he meant, yes. Yeah, you're right, Ray. It had but nothing to do with drugs, exactly. Yeah, that's what I got out of the song. Lou. That's what was cool about Pink Floyd back then. That weirdness. All the sound effects and the dial tones and the, the kids screaming in the background. They, they made you make your own picture in your head without having to put a video on, you know, to think it for you. Surprise, surprise, surprise. This is one of those songs. I don't know. Maybe it was my stoned little brain. 
uh, I used to put headphones on or sit on the floor with bolt speakers kind of aimed at my head to, you know, kind of, kind of just feel this, you know, it, it, they make you figure it out for yourself and you do. I love this tune. I'm not going to get into the whole analysis of all of this professor and Sam are probably, and, and, and Shannon are probably going to do it way better. I'm going to take the way this stuff kind of makes me feel and made me feel uh, besides I'm not going into any of the mommy issues or, you know, I'll let Roger do that today. Our pounds kind of fuck us up as we unintentionally, but ultimately fuck up our own kids. Um, you try not to, but <laughs> yep. you know, it we inevitably do. happens. Yes. It's <laughs> happened. I oh, shit. Kids up. <laughs> Haven't and, we uh, all? They love Pink Floyd. Well, I mean, listen, listen, to the, listen to the lyrics of this. I mean, he's asking her, should I trust the government? Should I Should I do this? Should I do that? Am I going to be on the firing line? What's going to happen to me? Yeah. He's, try, he's looking for any kind of direction from her. and She's looking she's for just, solace at she's, this point. She's not, a, she's not equipped to give her any, to give anything other than you're not doing anything. She is I a can't, pillar I can't of help his you. life. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's a pillar. Right. My mood's definitely starting to change around now in this album. <laughs> dark, right? Yeah. It's dark. worse. Shannon. Okay. This might be my favorite track on, on the album. I think it is melodic. It's so gorgeous. I mean, right down lyrically, it's it's not funny. But the way that he asks, you know, whether or not she's trying to break his balls. It's like, Jesus, how poignant can you get? For me. Right. But the piano, the way that it's like, you know, like, you know, I feel bad, Lou, because, you know, you're right. Psychologically, I, I can delve into this till the cows come home. I understand what it means, but melodically, it's so beautiful and so Floyd. And you can just groove to it, even with, with the vocals, no matter what, no matter what they're saying. The way they sound, the actual intonation of them are it's perfect. So lush. It's so it lush. is very lush. What a great way to say that. Lush and light. What he's looking for at this point is solace. He's had a rough ride at this point, and he's still a kid. He just wants reassurance. That's it. And so there's this place. It, you can't call it a void because it's not void. But it is in the respect of the fact that there is a place to be filled. And I think that's where this song fits perfectly because it is exactly that. It is gorgeous. This is the lullaby. You guys talked about the lullaby in the intro. Yeah, this is the lullaby. He yeah. wants to be reassured as he enters manhood whether or not he's going to be okay. And that's how I feel about this song. Nick Mason can't play no 9-8 time. Are you fucking with him, Raj? <laughs> but don't worry, Nick. I couldn't count out all those different time signatures in the verses either. Good thing we got Jeff Picaro on hand to play the drums on this one. Now, there are certain tentpole songs on this album that get regular radio play, and the story kind of builds around them. And this is one of them, along with the last track, actually. So, musically, I dig it, with Waters' acoustic 6 and Gilmore's acoustic 12 string guitars. Gilmore's also on bass and the short electric guitar solo. 
And apparently this track was also too much for Wright because it's Bob Ezrin on piano in Oregon. Waters as Pink sings his questions in the verses, and Gilmore sings the answers as the mother. And she couches her controlling bullshit and sugary, lovey-dovey words while she tells Pink she'll keep him from the dirty girls. Sounds like more bricks for the wall, am I right? <laughs> yes, you are. I agree. So let's flip the imaginary record over and drop the imaginary needle on disc one, side two, and goodbye, blue sky. Written by Roger Waters. Did, 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 did you see the frightened ones? Did, 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 did you hear the falling bombs? The flames are all long gone, but the pain lingers on. Professor, hit us. Look, Mummy, there's an aeroplane up in the sky. <laughs> Creepy little kid. <laughs> it feels like it's like the Blitz. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, so since Roger himself has no memory beyond the numerous stories he'd heard recounting the Nazi bombing of England, this is just something he's, he's just going to say that's been uh, very well covered, the impact the bombings had on this particular generation of England's children. Yes, from the Beatles, the Stones, the Who, the Kinks, Zeppelin, Clapton, Beck, all have revealed how this has informed and shaped their lives forever and the aftermath of playing in the ruins. This is Roger's recollection, which captures the terror and impending doom and hopelessness of all of it perfectly, I might add. And this is where, just the, where he goes, the lyrics where he's asking, did you see the frightened ones? Did you hear the falling bombs? Did you ever wonder why we had to run for shelter when the promise of a brave new world unfolded beneath a clear blue sky. Damn. Uh, in other words, he's saying our childhood is over collectively right. forever altered by this terrifying and reoccurring experience. Period. Well, this was really powerful. I love the sonic scape of this song, how this one builds on there. And that's all I got for this one. Lou. Those low Hertz keyboard pedal tones really rattle your cockles, don't they? That was pretty well done. More sound effects, more sonic imagery. I really like it, but it's really starting to put a damper on my day. Uh, you really get the sense of impending doom with those keys in the background and the subwoofer vibrating your seat. Gilmore's voice perfect that melancholy sadness it's supposed to give you that feeling of doom he's saying goodbye to the carefree childhood like ray was saying exactly it's nostalgic right into the vapid cesspool they call life on this planet shannon well i agree with both of those viewers i mean again i i think Yes, it's based on history with the Blitz, but I think it's also because of his history and but we, also what he knows about it, it feels like this is happening to him real time in his mind. It, it is a metaphor, but it's not, not in his mind. This is real. Like it's goodbye. 
we're transitioning to a different stage. It's, it's just, it's from childhood to adulthood. He knows this is going to get different now. And this is where it really gets interesting. All those sounds, it makes you wonder if he wasn't starting to suffer from schizophrenia. <laughs> here, here, here comes Jung <laughs> or even Freud. It's like, what's going on in his head? He's had a really traumatic childhood. He sees all of these things, the experiences that he's had. Is he mixing his own experiences up with his ancestors? Which is real, which is not? Are they both the same? What he's is kind happening? of disassociated from it. Exactly. Yeah. It makes you wonder about the actual first person. Is he actually losing his mind at this point? Or is he just recounting his past and how he feels? Does that make sense? I think he's questioning if he is, is sane or not. Exactly. That's what, that's what I think that's, that what Roger's doing in all this. He's, right. Like I said, that's it's cathartic. He's questioning, it. am, I, exactly. am I sane or am I some sort of lunatic? Some right. high-functioning schizo. So. Right. Hence the reason why I say it's like, is this his past, his present, or is it everything that he's you know conjured? That's how I feel about this. Like I said, this album is the musical equivalent of Fight Club. <laughs> it is yeah it is because you know the guy that you're fighting or in his case in in terms of the protagonist which is the first person in the album who is he fighting it's his past it's his mother it's his father it's it's it, the establishment it's his headmaster it's his peers it's everybody it's ultimately him it's exactly Robert. right overdrive which is fighting Sam. Did, 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 did you ever wonder why we had to run for shelter and coldness in the brave when we fell beneath the clear blue sky? Dun, dun, dun. This one is one of the fucking greatest fucking songs on this record. And it's very short, but uh, it's so pretty. I love the way it's, it's in D. It's D major, but then it goes to D minor. Like uh, uh, another song that does that is Norwegian Wood, you know. Uh, but this, uh, those fucking synthesizers, uh, they're uh, they take over, you know. They're this the acoustic, and then the synthesizers kind of like over overcome it, you know. I think uh, this is a fucking beautiful song, man. I love that. It's like it, it's just <laughs> it's funny that it's the same uh, riff as Hysteria by Def Leppard. Definitely. Time out. Foul, 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 foul. Flag on the play. Def Leppard should never be mentioned in the same sentence as Fink Floyd. Well, period. I think I think <laughs> I think they ripped this little riff off from Pink Floyd. So they may have. They, totally they probably did. did. Yeah. And uh, because it's beautiful, man. It's so simple. It's so simple. It's so easy to play. <laughs> And the way they do the did 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 you see the frightened ones? Did you hear falling bombs? He's he's talking about his fucking parents. She may have been pregnant with him. Well, there were bombs dropping around her. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what he's trying to say. In the I don't know. It's fucking powerful, man. This record is getting deep and dark. Further than I want to, to admit, or do I want to explore in myself? 
The pretty acoustic guitars are tempered with dark, moody synthesizers played by Wright, Waters, and Gilmore, as Pink's recollections of the German Blitz are presented by Gilmore in a childlike voice that somewhat clashes with the horrific subject matter. I love this track, and I, I picked this I picked this up too, Sam. Both Def Leppard and Metallica must have liked this song because they both nicked a pinch of it for the songs Hysteria and Fade to Black, respectively. You're right. Holy yeah. shit. Fade to Black did it too. Yeah. And I love that chorus too. Goodbye, Ruby Tuesday. Oh, fuck. Wait, oh, oh, shit. Oh, more bricks. Bricks. More bricks. More bricks. Let's go. Let's get this wall built. We're going to build it. The following track is Empty Spaces, written by Roger Waters. What shall we use to fill empty spaces? Lou, let's have it. We fill the empty spaces with more bricks. All the other little things that fill the holes of the wall that you put up to protect yourself. Now, I disagree with the actual playlist for this. This is where a song that's included in that horrible movie that we mentioned before, um, and in the live on the, the concert CD, is there anybody out there? It's what shall we do now belongs here. What shall we do now? Yes. And Fuck it's you. a, it's a great fucking song. Yes. This one fits where it belongs on the lyric sheet, you know, empty spaces, which really it should, after he flips out, that's really where this belongs, which, you know, because it, it it's just about, right before he seals himself off from everyone. It should be after Don't Leave Me Now. Didn't they cut that song because it was it was going to be it, it wouldn't have been on the album? Yeah, it's too long. It was going to be album length issues? Yeah. Yep. Shannon. Well, it kind of feels like some sort of like, you know, um, an intermission. <laughs> to me, it does. I, well, so did the last track as well, but it's like, I don't know, we've reached the end of the war, maybe? And we're moving on into the next phase. It's dark. And by the way, think about it. Queensryche took quite a bit of that for uh, Operation sure Mike. Yes. And it's, it's really, really funny. I mean, it was really, really instrumental. I mean, it was like instrumental for them in terms of that album. But a lot of people like, you know, think of that album based on Pink Floyd, which I totally get. But that part in particular feels like you're walking into a mental institution. It feels like there's a marching beat to something that just isn't quite, you know, all together. It's not right. It's transitioning. And you can you can hear the elements of the past mixing with the future. They're actually, they're finally converging. They're finally like, you know, becoming one. You can feel it happening. But how it actually ends is what the real, the real story, where it goes. Sam. Shannon, you're absolutely right. That March, 
thing that he does is absolutely uh, is going into something darker. This is one of those uh, parts of the record that uh, I, f- I feel very connected to because I felt that way before, too. I think everybody has. Professor. Well, Pink has grown up, and evidently, between mother and saying goodbye to the blue sky, he got married. And the marriage has turned sour amid Pink's further self-isolation. He doesn't really see how this isolation has caused this emptiness. That drumming that you guys talked about, how that building up, is kind of the build-up to the end of the marriage, and it's going to be another loss for poor Pink. And he's not going to recover well from that. Sadly, this song kind of reminds me of my first marriage a little bit. Oh, no. (laughs) But hey, that's that's the way it goes. Um, (laughs) Also, this song is the song with the backwards message, the famous one that Pink Floyd put on there. Congratulations, you've just discovered the secret message. Please send your answer to old Pink. Care of the Funny Farm. Shelfont. Creepy mechanical synthesizer atmospherics. Heralding an ominous, I'm taking your word, Shannon, ominous musical motif and pink griping about how to complete the wall. This would sometimes be played on the radio as the intro to the next track. And that next track is Young Lust, written by Roger Waters and David Gilmore. Shannon, how about it? I love this song. Ooh. <laughs> I don't even remember the word. No, I mean, no, no. Dirty, dirty woman. Last thing, but yes, in all seriousness, I think this is a really funny transition because suddenly it's like, I am going to be this strong boy. And I'm not singing it, no, obviously, but it's like, that's how he feels. Like, you know, I'm overcoming everything that's happening at this point. And he is sexy as hell. It's it's completely, it's got a definite, like, you know, uh, disco-type vibe to it. But it also feels a little bit more like what's happening to Pink at this point is that he is putting himself out there. He is sexy as hell. <laughs> and... um it's it's a really cool tune, and I love I just love the way it jams. I think it's great. Sam, <laughs> it's one of my favorite Pink Floyd songs, and uh, I, I agree with uh, Shannon that the, this fucking sexy. It's like, hey man, I'm gonna go out there and get laid. Somebody's gonna <laughs> sleep with me. Somebody's gonna sleep with me. And, ooh, do the ooze again. This the ooze have been through the record the whole time. Ooh, babe. Ooh, I need a dirty woman. Ooh, mama. Everything. So, yeah, this time, ooh, I need a dirty woman. Prof. Pink is a rock star. He's a married one. And his marriage is ending. And he's going to be looking for a certain type of groupie to go hang out with. He's just a new boy, stranger in the town. He just wants a good time. He needs a dirty woman. Okay. No surprise here that Gilmore had a hand in this song with that fantastic guitar riff and solo. 
it's kind of funny that he's stepping out on his marriage and then the dialogue at the end of this song is really uncomfortable to listen to. <laughs> mm. Where uh, A bit phone, on the zap side. <laughs> yeah, where, where the phone rings and it's a click of a receiver and then it's hello. Yeah, collect call from Mrs. Floyd to Mr. Floyd. Or then, from Mr. Floyd. Will you accept the charges from the United States? And it, it hangs up and it's a guy answering. Click. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's just really uncomfortable because you know exactly what's going on. Lou. It's straight ahead rocker. This was written <laughs> to be a single. Uh, we all know what it's about. I'll, I'll just say Gilmore's vocals are on point for this. Um, and it's the perfect guitar solo vehicle and recipe. Roger moves the story forward with the sound effects of Pink's catching his wife back in America, cheating on him, sending him further spiraling downward like my mood tent pole track time fuck you ma i'm getting me a dirty girl better than a cheating wife know what i mean or is it the following track is one of my turns written by roger waters Sam, start us off. I can feel one of my turns coming on. Oh, my God. This motherfucker has the rage. The same rage that I have. The same rage that a whole bunch of people have. He's about to fuck some shit up. And <laughs> you have this calm part before you but it's like look i'm about to fuck if you don't shut up i'm about to i'm about to go <laughs> off on you motherfuckers if you don't shut up if you just let fucking <laughs> stop i will fucking go off on you what does he say cold as a razor blade tight as a tourniquet the british fuck died as a funeral drum Bum, 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 bum. I know it's an intro to the next song, but god damn it, do I love it. Hell yeah. Let's go. <laughs> Professor. <laughs> the chick with the, want to take a bath? Her line, that annoys the hell out of me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's just a vapid dingbat that's in the room with him. And now I sound like Pink's mother. Well. Pink? Slash Roger is is, uh, deeply hurt and depressed. His wife is sleeping with someone else. It's something I always find interesting that the serial cheater in a relationship, nine times out of ten, will flip out over this situation without even considering for a second all the shit that they've done. Hmm. But as soon as they find out that their significant other is stepping out on them, it may only be once, but that's the fuse is lit, like Sam said. So it's going to blow up. Reading these lyrics, you can just see that, that he's got this desperate mental state and it's it's complemented perfectly by the soundscape that the band builds around these lyrics and this is that's to me that's where the genius of pink floyd resides in the fact that they can do that and that's why roger even floyd after roger without the two of them together 
they never really reach the same uh, level of success. Momentary lapse of reason, and what's the other one that they did with the uh, the division bell? They're good. They're just different. They're not the same as as this stuff. This this stuff is gold. That's yeah. This stuff is fucking gold, man. Yeah, it could have been. They could have made a single album out of it, though, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just it's just not the same. It just it's it's missing Rogers. He's he's got a little bit of a sadist in him where he just wants to shoot his metal shit on everybody else and, and fuck with you. So and that just complements this music perfectly. It does. <laughs> Twisted as Again, he wasn't right. He wasn't all together. We always know this. So I no, think that's where no. his injections are really appropriate. And this is one of them for sure. Yeah. And yeah. he's like, he's about to blow up. And then he's like, run to the bedroom in the suitcase on the left. You'll find my favorite axe. And don't look so frightened. This, this yeah. will pass. It's just a bad day. You know, and why Why are you running away? I don't understand. Because, you know, I'm going to fly out the 20th store of some hotel. Oh, because I want to fly. Say, why are you running away? <laughs> That's just awesome. <laughs> blow, blow, blow. He, just, he just loses everything. That's This, this guy is just lost his central theme. Loses his father, loses any kind of direction, loses his wife. Now he loses the chick he wanted to bang. Lou. So how many people do know this word for word? I mean, it's like a rite of passage. I know it. I, know it. I don't. It's, I know it's, the music, but I don't know the words. It's really two separate songs. You know, the tension of the first part, it's palpable. It's, you can feel it. It's like an over squeezing an overinflated balloon. Tight as a tourniquet. He's cracked. The second half, yeah, he crashes in, he flips out, and he just starts wrecking yes. everything. He's cracked. But he ended a song you're almost tired of listening to him. You know, it's just from listening to him, lose it. It's it's another one of my favorites on the record. Why are you running uh, like Lou said, we have here a tale of two tunes. The first part's gloomy synths and Pink retreating further into his glum mindscape. Then the music switches to a rocker and Pink goes nuclear. He's had it. Now, normally I'm not a fan of Roger's voice when he really goes up in that high register. It drives me, it drives me nuts. But here it works. Dude snapped and he's getting violent. I also dig Gilmore's melodic lead toward the end of the track. That is good stuff. The next track is Don't Leave Me Now, written by Roger Waters.
Professor Permi, lead us off. Well, here, here you go. He's, he's had his post flip out, and now he's remorseful, and he's thinking about his marriage that's over. Close examination of these lyrics reveal that he's an abusive beast of a husband. So run, girl, run. He needs her to put through the shredder in front of his friends. You know how he needs you to be to a pulp on a Saturday night. Oh, babe, how could you treat me this way? <laughs> yeah, run, girl, run. Run as fast as you can. And as far as the narrative of, the, of this album goes, this dude is now all alone. Lou. Running away, are you? Didn't I do this already? <laughs> or, or, or we, oh, no. We, that was great. Doing Don't Leave Me Now. <laughs> um, it's, it's almost got an after-sex glow to it, don't it? Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit. Rich, you know, like, it, he kind of, yeah, he kind of had his release and... Yeah. You know, now he's he's got that oxytocin feeling. You know. Absolutely, it's flowing. <laughs> Again, that movie fucking wrecked it for me because now all I can think of is that asshole bleeding in the fucking pool. It's so weird. Fuck. <laughs> it, it, it's uh, it's like a literal like like oh man, it's such a weird interpretation. <laughs> makes me wish they worked as hard on pros and cons than they did on the wall. You're right. They should have put up a big board and said that. You know, what? how, you know, whatever. <laughs> the end of this does have like an outer body vibe to it, though. Mm-hmm. The dark room and a lounge chair, highly sedated. You could almost float out of your body by the end of this one. Pink's really losing his shit. And this is the culmination of all that shit. He really takes it out on that poor TV, though. <laughs> Shannon. Oh, I think I, I think I said too much during everybody else's stuff because I agree with everything that I just heard. And I am so sorry about that. But I agree with everybody. At this point, it's traumatic. This is tra- this is like PTSD. <laughs> that's, at least that's the way it, it sounds and it feels in the way that you see it, of course, as it was poignantly described. But um, yeah, you can you can feel that come down at the end of it like you know what fuck it all i'm done with this shit you know i've been through fucking hell i'm ready to just like feel nothing sam man i fucking agree with uh shannon it touches me in a in in the wall my special spot it touches me in my special spot just like the priest's (laughs) <laughs> here we go again it is a, you know and when you think about you know the entire thing it, it, when we talk about building all those bricks like the way that aaron always is so eloquent about the way that he says it building all those bricks that is exactly what this this entire album is about but he is totally nailing it right there i'm getting closer to that point where nobody can get through yeah. to me at this point yeah. and he's at that edge right there Ooh, it's, yep. it's, it's over. Shut it down. It's goodbye. I'm leaving you. And now after this, we're going to get dark. We're going to get violent. We're going to get, we're getting to the meat of it. I think right now, this is the meat. Now, this one gets real tedious for me as it drags on and Roger's pleading high voice grates on me. 
The rest of the band does come in to provide some relief from Pink's wailing, but yeah, this one does not do it for me, and this is only the first time it happens, folks. The following track is Another Brick in the Wall, Part 3, written by Roger Waters. Lou, hit us. I don't need no arms around me. He's got no more fucks to give. He's shutting out. Uh He's shutting it all out. He's just, he's built up that wall to hide from all the fucking bullshit that he's had to put up with his whole fucking life from losing his dad. The overprotective old lady, to his cheating wife, to fucking completely fucking whatever what's left out of this guy before he blocks out everyone, and he ain't ever coming back. He don't need anything at all. No, he don't need anything at all. All in all, it's just bricks in the wall. This is fucking dynamite, man. I remember uh, WNEW Scott Muni. Uh, he used to play, they had a cut of where they mixed all three of these songs together. So you can hear everything from another brick in the wall, part one, then two, then three. It was really cool. I guess when the, the DJ had to go take a pee or whatever, he'd put on all, you know, the, the long version. Shannon. Oh man. All right. So I agree with both. I, I, I agree with all of it. The, bri- the bricks are almost built into a full wall. This is his last, he's flipped out at this point. It's like, you know what? Fuck everybody. You know, I don't need arms around me. I don't need shit. You know what? Fuck everybody. He doesn't want any more comfort. He doesn't need his mom, his father, his wife. He doesn't need anything to help him through the next part. Because, you know, at this point, there is nobody around to help. And you can feel it through the music. It's built up to a point. <sighs> Hence the wall, I guess. It's it's really, it's profound. And you can feel the edge. There's an edge there that everybody feels where you get so upset that you don't know what else to do except to shut down. And it's coming. It's coming soon. Sam. I agree with everything that uh, everyone has said. But it's like... It grips you. This is like a setup to the uh, the great reveal to the people that don't know what will happen. Prof. Anybody ever see that bootleg that of uh, them performing the wall at, at the Royal Albert Hall? I have not. Okay, this is the point where the wall becomes complete. They're, they're completely behind it. There's the last couple bricks get put in, and, yes. and from the from the movie, all those animations that everybody loves from the movie, those <sighs> were all being projected on the wall back in 1980 when they were performing this around the world but with, for their 30-something shows that they did. Lou, you nailed it with what this song is about. He doesn't have any more fucks to give. He doesn't care. It's all right. about him. And 
what's kind of cool, and it's everybody can identify with this, is there comes a time in everybody's life where they just go, fuck it. It's up to me. <laughs> My life is up to me, and I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do, and it's going to be I'm going to own it. And everybody's been there. And that's kind of what, what this song kind of resonates that with me. But as far as it goes in the narrative of the of this concept album, this dude has completely cracked. And this is the only way he can move on. So, But don't you also get the feel from it, pr- Professor, is, is the part where it's like he has cracked, but he's also very uncertain about what that means to him. Oh, yeah, There's, I'm sure he's scared but, stiff. I'm sure he's frightened yes. by all this. But he, he, he just, he's, it, but he's, like, he's not frightened enough to go uh, to reach out for any kind of help. He's, right. he's completely shut in. He doesn't, yes. he, he says, I don't need anything at all. No, don't think I need anything at all. I mean, he's, he says that twice in the song and there's like, what, only like nine lines of, of lyrics there. So, well, even yeah, like you, done. you, even like you, you and Lou even said, you know, it's like, you know, don't want those arms around me. Don't even want the help necessarily. It's like, you know, nope. fuck it. I've looked for it before. I don't know where it is, but I, I, I need it, but I don't know where to go next. And I know but that it ain't, I, I it ain't am, what I've had before. I know that. Right. Much. Yes. I don't know what it is, but I know what it isn't. Exactly. The four members of Floyd are on this, no outside help. And it's all blaring guitars, blipping synths, thumping drums, and basic bass. On the Another Brick in the Wall theme is Pink says, screw you to everybody, you all suck. You're all bricks in the wall. That now stands near completion in his head. It's a plot device that ties in nicely to what we've heard before and sets us up for what's coming next. And the next track is Goodbye Cruel World, written by Roger Waters. Shannon, let's have it. Oh, man. It's sad. He's on a downward track at this point. He's, he's heading downward, and he's singing it very melodically. It's, it's lovely. And the music behind it, again, is just so dark and for, foreboding. <laughs> it's like we haven't reached the point of the end. And you can still feel it's, we're, we're, the downward spiral. We've already reached the peak. We are heading down. And this is where it becomes like, okay, my past is my past. I'm holding on to it greatly. I wish there were a future. I don't think Pink feels like there's much of a future at this point. I think he's reached the end of that, of this tumultuous like cycle. I mean, it's, it just feels desperate and also defeating at the same time. Sam. So fucking sad. But it also, is. I think I think it's a, 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 like a life raft. It's like, hey, I'm terrified and I'm going to kill myself. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Can you please help me? The help's not going to come on this record. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> it is coming. But I don't feel it at this point. 
I don't feel it. <laughs> I think but it's you're right. I can hear it, but I don't. I don't hear it in his voice. I don't feel it in in the way that he feels. I feel it so hard. I mean, he may have felt like uh, he didn't want to be here anymore. Ray P. Yeah, I think he was thinking of checking out. So, and that's what yeah. that's what's so poignant about this song. It's just an easy little ditty. It's not, you know, it's not Roger singing Kumbaya or he'd like to teach the world to sing here. Um, <laughs> he's thinking of checking out completely and he's scared and he is, it is a cry for help. I mean, it's like, it's like, you know, somebody's first suicide attempt, you know, yeah. and it's, it's a, this, this song scared the shit out of me when I first heard it. So, and I, I just do not like this song period. Cause I just don't like that. I can't handle that that complete give up because that would, that would scare the hell out of me period. Lou odd as it sounds. I like to sing this in a hot shower right before I have to go into the office for a long day. <laughs> Is this before I'm like a heavy meeting? <laughs> Just any day, really. Then I have to deal with talking to people outside of my own circle. <laughs> I don't know what that means subconsciously, and I'm not going to go into it on record on a record review podcast. You need therapy, sir. <laughs> therapy. Oh, and my voice sounds fucking awesome in the shower. <laughs> Damn right, guys. I'm pretty sure with water dripping down my navel. <laughs> I'm so turned on right now. <laughs> Team's new computer. I am gonna spit water all over this computer. We've <laughs> got the weirdest boner right now. Uh, Don't spit anything on that fucking computer, Ray. The way it goes from that reverbed bathroom shower kind of sound to that dry final goodbye is like really jarring. Mission accomplished. I'm now suicidal. Um, I'm questioning <laughs> my very existence. Yeah, this is the wrap up. Just Waters bass and writes keyboards. As Pink acknowledges, the wall is finished, and he's now completely isolated. It's the coda to the story in the album, but is it really necessary after another Brick Part 3? Mm, probably not. But it's only a minute and change, so no harm, no foul. And what a dark journey this album was. Pink killed himself, it's over. So now the track by track is finished. Oh, wait. There's more. <laughs> a lot more. <laughs> So let's take the first imaginary disc off the imaginary turntable, put on imaginary disc two, and kick side three off with Hey You, written by Roger Waters. Hey you, out there on your own, sitting naked by the phone, would you touch me? Hey you, with your ear against the wall, waiting for someone to call out, would you me to carry the stone Sam, you're up. Dude, this is one of the best songs ever written by anyone ever in the this fucking song. It's not easy to play. It's hard to play. And it's beautiful. And it's, that makes it so much better. If you can play it, 
to help me to carry the line. Oh my god. If you don't like this song, then fuck you. <laughs> I want a shirt last, with that. Famous on. last words before a bar fight, right there. <laughs> Professor. Okay, here's the rub. First of all, the music to this song fits perfectly. The bass line, how it slithers along like a snake through the psychosis of Pink's inner dialogue. We are social beings after all. Now there are introverts and extroverts, but we are all at our essence social. We need human contact. This is the struggle between Pink's self-protective impulse to isolate completely and his need for contact. His psyche calls out to anyone beyond his well-crafted wall. Then he comes to the conclusion but it was only fantasy. The wall was too high. No matter how he tried, he couldn't break free, and the worms ate into his brain. His, ah! his warped mind is going to be consumed by itself. He falls into the depths of his own isolation. Somehow he realizes that he's not alone in this kind of loneliness. There are others like him, isolated apart and disenfranchised. The lonely. Hey, you standing in the road, always doing what you're told, can you help me? This is not explicitly spelled out in the in the lyrics or in the in the music, but I suspect these are people that his music really appeals to in the deepest way is who he's reaching out to at the end of this song. Together we stand, divided we fall. Lou. I just want to say the solo in this precisely describes the emotion of helpless despair mm. that this song represents. He's sinking and going down for the third time. He's Gilmore can really wring all of that emotion out of that one note too. Um, I mean, you could feel the maggots eating into his brain. It's it's you feel the helplessness Pink is feeling. You can identify with the guy. I just want to say that this is the start of one of the most depressing album sides in rock history. Right, <laughs> this is it. right here. Shannon. Well, you know, it's kind of funny. So we all talk about how he's reaching out for help. Sometimes I wonder if when he says, hey, you, he's not referring to himself because I think he's actually gone so far within himself. He's built that wall so far up that he has nobody else to turn to. And there's that, hey, you, wake up. You know what I mean? He doesn't say that implicitly, but I feel like that's what he means. And then he does start to talk, like, outwardly. Like, it, But I, almost, I always think it's to himself. He wants to be heard by others, but they don't hear him because the wall's too big. So I always think it's him saying, like, hey, you, you know, wake up. Musically, it is gorgeous. I absolutely agree. I think this song is beautiful. It's melodic and it's, it's just so lilting and lovely. And just can't you just help me along that type of thing? Like, you know, it's pleading again. There's that, there's that fucking desperateness that like everybody's already, you know, commented on everybody feels at one point or another, but I always feel like it's internal. Like he's, he's trying to, he's like, he's like, this fight is within himself more than anything. That's my opinion. Another tentpole radio song, and an odd one, in that Waters doesn't play on it, he only sings. All the spectral guitars are done by Gilmore, as well as the cool fretless bass. While the Fender Rhodes, Hammond organ, and ARP synths are done by Wright. 
The acoustic guitar arpeggios played by Gilmore are very haunting, and as always, he delivers on the solo, like Lou said, and he actually sings the first part of the song, which is quite welcome to my ears. Hey, Pink, you done fucked up. This wall thing might not be working out so well for you, huh? See me, feel me. (laughs) (laughs) The following track is Is There Anybody Out There? Written by Roger Waters. Is there anybody out there? Out there, is there anybody out there? Professor Permy. Well, other than the title of this song, what more needs to be said? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Because that's all that this is, just a little, what, filler. That he's just crawling out for somebody. But that's it. Nobody's answering. Lou? It is more of an interlude. As Pink falls past the point of no return, he's built that (laughs) wall so high, he's just out of touch with everything. He's lost. He's wallowing in his own head. The TV's on in the background as reality kind of fades further, further away. As the tension's released by an acoustic guitar up against that backdrop of strings that just makes my hair stand on end. Mm. It, it makes me feel off, like sad. It's in A minor. Not the saddest of all keys, which would be <laughs> D minor. My favorite chord on the guitar. A minor is my favorite chord on the guitar. It literally is. Yes, it is one of the top four saddest keys. Shannon. I think this song is great. Um, he's already gone, Pat. Yes, I agree. He's, he's past the point of no return. Like I said in the last track, he's, I, I feel like he was talking to himself already. And now we're fully there. It's like nobody heard him. I don't think, he, I don't think anybody could have heard him because he was only speaking to himself. And that's where I think we are at this point. And I do agree that this is an interlude. Again, you know, Floyd is famous for this. Everything about them is always a prelude to the next piece, which is always master. And that's what makes them great. Sam. Out there. It reminds me like they got some saucer full of secrets things going on. With uh, the lap steel guitar, David Gilmore does the little echoes in there too, right? Yeah. In the middle like of the that. scary the part of echoes. Yes, yes, that's he's. They're bringing that. They did that shit too. They always bring Pink Floyd. Always brings the old stuff back, and so they'll leave a little giggle and it's like <laughs> a low drone and guitar seagull effects. And later on, orchestral elements underneath a classical guitar solo, not played by Gilmore, but a guy named Joe de Blasi. Yeah, it's a weird one and sort of redundant after the last track. I don't need this at all. Touch me, <laughs> heal me, 
The next track is Nobody Home, written by Roger Waters. And I got a strong urge to fly But I got nowhere to fly to Fly to Lou, your turn. It <laughs> 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 sounded like a real shotgun, too. Shannon. Well, I kind of agree with the last comments on it. At this point, it's like, okay, yeah, there, there is nobody home. <laughs> <laughs> There's very little substance here, and it's just again, it's the second part to a prelude. <laughs> something coming on. That's my opinion as well. Sam, you the last two guys are full of shit. Um, there's so much. Got elastic bands keeping my shoes on. Got those swollen hand blues. I got dirt. Teen channels of shit on the TV. Choose from. Got an electrolyte. I got a. Oh my God. I got second sight. And that is how I know. When I try to get through, telephone to you. Shannon, there'll be nobody home. (laughs) 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 Fucking love this song. And it's so I, I totally relate to the song, and everybody knows why. And so I don't have to have anything else. I mean, you know, you know. <laughs> Professor, got thirteen channels of shit on the TV to choose from. <laughs> anyone, anyone who has ever had cabin fever is intimately familiar with that expression. Choose from, choose so. from. Uh, here's, here's, here's kind of what's crazy with this song is he's reaching out to people that are reaching out to him, but he's near catatonic, and well, nobody's home. He can't relate to those around him, and they can't relate to him. So he's got all the rock star accoutrement because he's got his uh, obligatory, obligatory Hendrix perm and the in- inevitable pinhole burns all down <laughs> the front of his favorite satin shirt. My favorite satin Got his nicotine nicotine stains on his fingers and a silver spoon on a chain. Stains on got his addictions. And one of the best lines, I got a grand piano to prop up my mortal remains. Got a grand piano to prop up. Um, he's got wild staring eyes and a strong urge to fly, but nowhere to fly to. It's probably the best artistic description of depression I've ever come across. Professor, though, I'm curious, though, do you really think he's talking to you think he's actually like, you know, extending he wants to talk to the I think he wants to talk to the outside world, but you don't think it's actually like he's talking to himself? Yeah, he, he's he's completely within himself. He this, this yes. may be his own all his own inner dialogue, but he is like he thinks he's he asking crap. for help. It's totally like within him. He's, he's, he's like reaching out. He's yeah. reaching out, but he doesn't realize he's not. And, gotcha. and okay, nobody, that's can, a relate, yeah. nobody yes. can relate to him and he can't relate to anybody. 
Yes. This dude is probably doing the Clonopin shuffle. Uh, yeah, agreed. So. Well, he's about to do more than that. But at this point, you're right. He is so far gone and within himself that who knows, you're right, with his, his lifestyle, what he's already been propped up on. But it is totally internal at this point. I don't think anybody from the outside really knows what the fuck is going on. This one's got Gilmore on bass, Wright and Waters on synths, and Bob Ezrin on piano with the New York Symphony Orchestra guest starring again. So we get an idea of life behind the wall. Pink's struggling with loneliness and drugs, and he's got a little black book, a comb, a TV, a paddle game, and a remote control. That's all. That's all he needs. I feel like we are spinning our wheels here. This, fuck this. (laughs) He is the jerk. (laughs) The following track is Vera, written by Roger Waters. Shannon, how about this one? Um, you know, this one didn't really make a, a big impression on me. So, you know, I'd rather pass the baton and like make comments as we go. All right, let's pass it. Sam. Well, my future mother-in-law is, uh, her name's Vera. And so I laugh every time I see her because this fucking song plays in my head. Vera! <laughs> <laughs> what have come up, you? That's all I got, man. <laughs> Professor. Yeah, I remember hearing this the first time and answering when he goes, does anybody here remember Vera Lynn? And I just went, I never heard of her. I had to look her up. So, I mean, I did, I knew who she was. When I first heard this, I was like 13. So, but I mean, I knew who she was after, but I just looked her up again. But um, this is a song of loss, loss of sanity, loss of life, kind of mingled with the memories of a British World War II singer who inspired the troops and the home front. So he's kind of, this is where, this is where Roger kind of loses me a bit in his narrative, but he doesn't express it very well, but he's taking a leap saying pink is, is really tired of being gloomy and bored in his little wall. He wants to do something else and he's got to figure a way to do it. And he's trying to, he's trying to psych himself up. And as you're thinking about his past to this point, you know what you brought up when you said to me that, this this singer was like she just died as like 103 and is mm-hmm. from like the World War II era, which is where, you know, we go back to the Blitz in the beginning. Yeah. Is this yeah. memories of his early life? And it's like, oh, shit, I like we all talked about. He is stuck in his own head. He's trapped by all of his, you know, surroundings, all of the things that he's acquired. And now the only thing that he can relate to is is, is the part where he was actually like social. Well, More he's, vocal. He, he's, looking, he's looking for some sunny day. He's looking right. for a sunny day, so he's looking for hope. It makes me feel like I'm stretching and reaching at the straws there, but I think that that's what Roger was trying to do with this, but yeah, it, it doesn't come off well. Lou. 
I never got this song or why it was on here. I guess it's like he's looking back like he's kind of winsome for the, the you know, the days of yore or whatever. Right. Uh, but I know every fucking word. And anytime I meet a person named Vera uh, or hear the name, I at least think it to myself, if not out loud to that person in the face. Uh, Vera. Vera. Yeah, exactly. Um <laughs> You could totally Shatner this too, you know, <laughs> you know, with the hands and everything, you know, <laughs> you just did it in the, in his voice and got his voice in your head too, didn't you? <laughs> Dumb, sunny day. And another song that just depressed the ever living fuck out of me before this record's over. Yeah. I listened to this and there goes a minute and a half of my life. Fuck me, it sucks to be behind the wall. The next track is Bring the Boys Back Home, written by Roger Waters. Sam, you like this one? No. <laughs> Bring the boys back home. Don't tell Prof. Well, this is an English World War II standard, uh, World War One standard as well. With a twist, Pink is looking to set things right in his little mind, in his world. He just doesn't know how to yet. By the way, both of these songs I don't like. <laughs> Lou. Yeah, this is another one that I'm not sure what it's doing here or how it <laughs> propels this story. Did Pink contract Legionnaire's disease or something from that groupie before he kicked the shit out of her? Um, it's not even Pink Floyd. Yeah, it's, it's probably Bob Ezrin's doing, right? Oh, I believe it. Yeah, but I don't know, though, because did you... Roger Waters once gave an interview where he said that this track is the key to the whole album. This fucking thing. Really? Then you know what? This is where he really was lost within himself. (laughs) He was lost, all right. I don't know. Maybe we'll get it in the comments. Who knows? Shannon. I I think... Is he talking about himself again? Like, does he get to come back? Yeah, I think that's the twist he's trying to bring in there. Yes, exactly. I mean, he's already a lunatic. He's trying to fight. He's clawing his way out of his own psychosis. I mean, isn't it a perfect metaphor if you think about it? I mean, his entire like that's definitely childhood that's was based in post World War II. Yes. So you know that's what out. I think is bringing the troops home and the patriotism, especially in England. Don't forget Queen, everything like that. You know, it's very powerful. To quote the Beatles, it looms large in his legend. Yes. Fuck off, Roger. Oh, my ass. (laughs) When do we get to comfortably numb? (laughs) Oh, shit. So many things after that, too. Oh, wow. Thank goodness. The following track is comfortably numb. 
written by Roger Waters and David Gilmore. Professor Permi, do you like this one? What a fucking great song this is. <laughs> oh, my God. As far as the narrative of the album goes, Pink's going to get some pharmaceutical help. I'm sure I thought this was illicit drugs yeah. back in the day, but I'm thinking it's more like antipsychotic meds now. He's doing Thorazine, Clonopin, something, lithium, anything to get that mind going. Something that would knock a horse on its ass in about two seconds, I would suspect. I will say, if you listen to the song, and after both of these guitar solos, you're not a David Gilmore fan, I fear there's absolutely no hope for you as a music fan at all. <laughs> no, this song is so lush, and it's just so good. I don't, I didn't, never really understood how it fits in the narrative, uh, how, how this concept album is going. So, and I still really don't. It doesn't fit perfectly for me, but what a fucking killer track. Lou? This is the song that you endure side three for. No shit. Agreed. <laughs> Not saying it's bad music. It's just an emotional cinder block to the head. This is the release we all needed. Lest we jump off a fucking bridge. <laughs> the song itself makes you feel stone, doesn't it? it? After all that, holy shit. I just, I feel it crawling up my veins. Oh my God. Feels like a big, comfy, warm blanket of it's okay. It everything's gonna be all right. Holy crap! I need some of that. Uh, I do. Uh, you can almost feel the plunger on the syringe, like uh, in his arm, yes, just like hit bottom. Gilmore just turns on that Jedi guitar. Gilmore hose and magically just splurges like all of those notes, note after note after note of all that shit just all over the goddamn place. It's just a it's Gilmore bukkake. <laughs> <laughs> this solo is burned into my brain as one of the top Gilmore solos ever to get burned into your brain. I, I start twitching in a good way whenever I hear it. I can't not make that guitar face, especially at the end when he's really ringing out that. <laughs> turns my face into Jerry Tyler's from Facts of Life. It's like. It, those notes by the end, worms twisting, you know, wrapping him in that cozy blanket, digging in. I mean, he's just done. He's gone. <laughs> I truly think that that's the, the, the music that's playing out of the little rock speakers that are in front of the pearly gates before you go into the afterlife. <laughs> <laughs> Shannon. Well, you know, this is like my second favorite track in the entire album. And what's interesting, nobody's touched on is there are two solos in this song and they're equally beautiful. And What's interesting also about this song is I refer, I, I always think about this song is this is where he descends into heroin. I, 
I, I do. I think it's about heroin at this point. I think he hasn't met a doctor. I think he's met a dealer at this point. Somebody who is finally beyond like all of the other psychotics. He's met somebody who can like take away that pain. And and you can hear like that, like, you know, that that thrumming desperation in, in you know, in all those those vocals with that hello and all of like, you know, the echoing, the hello, hello. Is there anybody in there? You know, and maybe he's talking to himself again. I don't know. And maybe he's all, maybe he's plunging that syringe into his own arm. But I think it's about heroin. And I think it's about the serenity that comes along with the release of that pain. Because don't, don't forget at this point, heroin is huge in the musical community. I mean, we know how many bands are using it at this point. But both solos are gorgeous <laughs> and they are distinct. Definitely. One is grungier and darker. The other one is more lively and hopeful. We've been talking about hope somewhere in the midst of everything. But in between all of those layers, you can hear, you know, the symphony going on. You know, it's just sung beautifully. Even the horns come out just amazingly true. And, and just, it just comes through and it, comes together so beautifully the intricacy of this song is is just remarkable i i really admire the musicianship in this sam this fucking song <laughs> i don't know how to explain it but i i, I know every note it's been in my uh dna since i was a little kid i'm happy for that because that motherfucker Starts going playing the blues like, but then he it's, plays another note. He adds a note, adds a note to the uh, blues like, to the blues scale. But he oh. hits on it and hits on it, hits on it again, and hits on it again. The, fucking David Gilmore, you guys don't even know what I'm talking about. Then then he goes, "There is no pain you're already." Oh God! Yes. All right. So to me, I'm going to echo a little bit of what Lou said. This is a perfect marriage of sound to subject matter. The music is droning and ghostly. Now we have the thing. My interpretation of the lyrics is a little bit different than you guys, especially you, Shannon, but that's nothing unusual, right? (laughs) We've got, we've got the perspective from two different characters in this song. When Roger is singing, He's the doctor or the outside world because, you know, Pink's got the wall built up, but the outside world doesn't see a wall. They just see a whacked out rock star. Well, Pink is a rock star. So that means he's got to get on stage and perform. So the people outside who are in charge or running Pink's life, as it were, got to get him up there. Well, how are you going to do that? You got to get a doctor who's going to inject him with something, some type of substance that's going to make him able to stand on his two feet and perform. It's B12. So that's what they're doing to him. Yeah, whatever it is. So that's what's happening when the doctor is singing and the voice in Roger's voice is low. It's clinical. So when he shoots him, the music uplifts as the drugs take effect and Gilmore's superior singing voice kicks in and he's guiding us through the numbness. Now he's pink. He's feeling the drugs take effect. Oh, yeah. 
yeah, the pain's gone away. He's temporarily numb to the wall, numb to everything else, but he's able to function to get on stage and do his job. He probably isn't even barely aware that he's doing it. He's still all whacked out. He's still, technically the wall is still up, but for one little moment, he's got to get out there and perform. That's where I'm coming from with the lyrics. Michael Kamen's orchestrations enhance the choruses. They swirl with the synths. And to me, it feels like Ezrin arranged the orchestral parts. That's never been confirmed. But boy, does that feel like a Bob Ezrin arrangement. Because that... That string part, it's directly lifted from Sad Song from the the Lou Reed album Berlin that Ezrin produced, which which came out quite a few years earlier than this. Yes. And of course, we get those two celebrated, magnificent guitar solos from Gilmore. I mean, I, I, you guys said it all. I don't have to say any more about that. They're just unbelievable. To me, this is the tentpole song on the record. I never, ever, ever get tired of it. And it was the third single that reached number 10 on the UK singles chart. So let's flip the imaginary record over and drop the imaginary needle on disc two, side four, and the show must go on, written by Roger Waters. The weirdest side of the record. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Tell us about it, Lou. Show must go on. All right. Um, I see this is an intro to the final act four in this play they're putting on. They've got him up, but he's an imitation drug-induced version of himself now. Anything to get the show on the road for the managers and the money. Shannon. I have to agree with all of that. Again, you know, it's so funny how internally I take this because I know that he has an external life, but I think of everything that's happening within this album is internal. So when I think about him and his show that has to go on, I keep thinking of him as just like getting up and like, you know, internally being like, okay, I can be strong now enough to like stand on my two feet after I've fallen on my ass and gone comfortably numb. So yeah, I guess he just has to get up and do what he has to do. Sam. Uh, I know this is uh, like a filler song, <clears throat> everything, but it's still fucking brilliant, man. This fucking, I don't know who, who wrote it. Uh, I, I believe Roger wrote it. He did. That's why I, I thought he should be in, in Broadway. He would be fucking fantastic in Broadway because he can write all these small little ditties, you know, that I uh, could you know, be segues into the next scene or whatever. He did that in the wall. So, yeah, the show must go on. (laughs) It's fucking great. And I have nothing bad to say about Roger Waters and the wall. Prof. There must be some mistake. I didn't mean to let them take away my soul. 
Am I too Ooh. old? Is it too late? This is Roger facing the uh, fact that he skated on the thin ice of modern life, and he is trapped. He's lost. He no longer knows who the hell he is. I hear this. I read those lyrics, and it made me think of, believe it or not, Garth Brooks, who in an interview would refer to his onstage persona as GB, or how the Rolling Stones will all individually refer to the band as the Stones, like it's some separate entity, and it's not like them. a third person type of thing. Yeah, and how Duran Duran refers to themselves as the Duran. Um, <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> yeah, because it, you hear it and you're like, well, really, it's you guys. But, you know, no, it just it grows into something bigger than themselves. I get that. Here, here he is asking, well, I remember the songs. Uh, he really feels trapped by his own life because the show's got to go on. His manager wants – there's too many people depending on him for a living. So he's going on. He's drugged up, whatever. He's going on. The show must go on. And this is the point where the record completely loses me. <laughs> what the fuck is this second-rate Beach Boys bullshit? Far as I'm concerned, we can shut the show down. Just no. The next track is In the Flesh, written by Roger Waters. So you thought you might like to Go to the show To feel the warm thrill of confusion That space cadet glow Shannon, how about this one? Um, at this point, I'm kind of lost as well. You know, I, I, I gotta be honest, as much as I love this album, it's, I get lost in terms of, I, I think we all talk about the fact that he is a musician. He's got this massive career, but I still, I, I forever think that the career is in his head. I know you guys will always disagree with me, but I do. I think the wall that he built up was something that was, psychosis and that's where i think he is musically even sam we're about to hear run like hell man <laughs> the next song is run like hell okay just let it go okay doesn't mean anything Fuck it. Guys about this shit. the next song is run like hell have you ever heard anything cooler than run like hell fuck you <laughs> fuck you Fuck! Professor, what do you think? Well, Pink, in his mind or in reality, becomes a drugged-up fascist demagogue. <laughs> he wants to find out where these fans really stand. And then he goes yeah. into the, the, the Nazi propaganda machine, where he's like asking if there's any queers. There's one in the spotlight that doesn't look right to him. That one's Jewish. That one's a coon. Who let all the riffraff into the room? There's one smoking a joint and another with spots, which in English means that they have bad acne. But if he had his way, he'd have all of you shot. Such a happy thought for Roger. Lou. Back when I first bought that album, it was, I think, one of the first plays that I had on it. My grandfather heard that. And my grandfather's like greatest generation. He was on the Tuscaloosa, you know, he was Navy man. 
And he's hearing this, and he was just like, turn that shit off. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to argue with him. And I turned it off. That's what smoking the joint. Turn the rock and roll off. <laughs> so this is a reprise of where we came in. Um, it's a little heavier. But this is getting pretty dark pretty fast, man. Why is he Hitler now? Why is Nazism he? is historical porn. There's no other way of putting it. Every okay. historian is, is repulsed and fascinated by the Nazis. Exactly. Okay. Well, World War II. Exactly. It's, Everything it's historical porn. Nobody can believe that that actually happened in modern life. It, that's that very true. That it went true. to that extreme. He was traumatized by losing his father in World War II by, from the Nazis, man. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He had a fucking problem. <laughs> so we get a reprise of the heavy in the flesh theme, and I love that just as I did before. And then it goes right off the fucking rails with Pink's self hallucinations of becoming a fascist dictator, complete with ethnic and gay hate speech. Nope, nope, stupid. Hard pass. The following track is Run Like Hell, written by Roger Waters and David Gilmore. Sam, tell us about it. Fuck you! <laughs> I never thought about that. Rising up, back I think on. Survivor actually took something from this. <laughs> I think from now on, whenever I hear this song, I'm going to think about Rocky Balboa fighting Clubber Lang. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ, this is too I'm weird. I'm going to think of LSU football game because <laughs> that's their song. What? Yeah, fuck LSU. <laughs> fuck LSU. Fuck fucking. <laughs> fuck, fuck Rocky Balboa, goddammit. How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> and fuck Survivor. How dare they? <laughs> fuck Survivor. Goddammit. <clears throat> fucking Pink Floyd was out there first. This guy pl- fucking played this fucking riff with drenched uh, analog delay, and it sounded fucking incredible. I don't know how anyone could uh, not uh, agree with that. Uh, it's one of my favorite Pink Floyd songs ever. Prof? Well, I always loved this song. Even if it's about the night of Nazi terror on the order of the night of broken glass, yeah. it's uh, Pink is going to go ahead and, and do a massive cleanse on society for us. When I saw this one, I mean, urge you guys, if you guys get a chance, I know Roger's doing his last, he says it's his last tour, and he's older than dirt. 
But if you get a chance to see him and he plays this, you will not be disappointed. The, the quadraphonic sound that he has, uh, the way he bounces it around, you will swear you were about to be overrun by a bunch of fascists while you're listening to this. Oh, boy. It's, a, it, it's just a hell of a good song in concert. Lou? Is it me or is all the good songs on this record have a 4-4 disco beat to them? (laughs) (laughs) It's another one of my favorites, though. It's uh, Ear Burn Be Damned. David fucking Gilmore with delay pedal. What did you expect other than just awesomeness? It's even fun to listen to with the live version on Pulse or Delicate Sound, but my favorite version is the Anybody Out There. It's the epitome of arena rock. Pink's in full Hitler mode now. He's running around his own little rock and roll crystal knot. He's getting revenge on all his lifelong tormentors and his head behind his wall. Yes. It's my take on it. Shannon. I think exactly what Lou just said. And of course, you know, what everybody has said, my take on this is, as well is that it's, well, it, it the, the song title, it speaks for itself. I think melodically, it's really, really great. It, it speeds up a bit, but he, is he running from all the shit that he has said to himself or from the people that he's imagined? <laughs> it's, 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 he has completely lost his mind. I mean, but it, musically, it's it's quite great. But I think, again, he has to run like hell from himself because he has said some horrible shit. But I always think it's to himself. And he's fighting these two different sides. But in his head, is he is he actually running from actual people or from himself? Sorry, I don't mean to throw in that whole, so, like, you know, Freudian, Jungian type of, like, you know, analogy there. But how can you not with this album? It's It's too absurd. It's the last tentpole song in the album, and I'm conflicted about it. I really dig the sound of it with the delayed palm muted guitar by <laughs> the tiger and the strident rhythm. Even the run, run, run is pretty cool. I just hate the story side of things. I can't stand the dictator angle that we've been shoved into. So what I do is when I hear this track on its own, separately from the album, I imagine it's just an expression of anger and fear, and I can roll with it better. I can certainly understand fear of the government. So I basically just ignore the context of the record when it comes on. This was the second single from the album that reached number 53 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart. The next track is Waiting for the Worms, written by Roger Waters. Professor Schoolis. So this is the song that I just would love to have been in the in the room when Roger pitched this concept to the other three members. Because they must have thought, dude, you are so off your fucking rocker. What the hell are you talking about? You become Hitler? 
And you're what? So <laughs> this Jesus. this is where he's uh, sitting. He, like Lou said, he's going after his enemies behind his wall. Okay. He's waiting for the worms to come, waiting to cut out the dead wood, clean up the city, to oh. put on a black shirt and weed out the weaklings, smash in their windows and kick in their doors. He's waiting for the final solution. Yeah, that's that's a little phrase I have a trouble with. Oh boy, yeah, to no sh- doubt. Strengthen the strain. Yeah, he says. Turn on the showers right. and fire the ovens. Oh boy, what the fuck? Yeah, you the queens and the coons and the reds and the Jews waiting to follow the worms. Wow, boom, I, just, I would have loved to have seen the face boom. on Gilmore. Just to look on Gilmore's face, going, "What?" And this is probably why he fired Rick Wright because Rick Wright probably said, "You're crazy." And you know Roger can't handle that. Anybody's yeah. It's like how can you possibly do this, right? Yeah. This is is that why? I remember in an interview with with Gilmore because they asked him, you know, what did you think of the when you made the wall? And he said, not that much. He 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 wasn't really interested in the album because he didn't have that much input to him because Roger went on this megalomaniacal, you know, lunacy, and he had already done that with with animals, and he really took over on animals. You know, and he said, oh. Gilmore said the last album he was interested in with Roger was Wish You Were Here. Lou. Yeah, he definitely knows he's reached rock bottom. The wall is finished. He's given up all hope. The final cut from the world. Perfect isolation. But now he's afraid of what's mm-hmm. on the outside. You know, he's afraid mm-hmm. of what's different. Mm-hmm. And that's what it is, is he's pointing it all out, all the differences, all the, the, you know, we've gone through the whole thing. To turn the showers and fire the ovens is a really creepy reminder of the Nazi actions again, um, killing the different, not only building the wall, also destroying what's beyond it. Deep shit. Not something you're putting on a playlist at a family picnic. (laughs) No, (laughs) no. Like slapping your aunt on the knee. No, no, listen to this. Listen. <laughs> it's, it's, this is uh, oh my interesting God. music you, you have there, Lewis. <laughs> that sounds like Zappa. <laughs> she turns to your mother and says, I think reform school would be good for him. Shannon. Well, I agree with everything that everybody has said. Um, he has hit rock bottom. The worms that are making their way through his head. I wonder if he's trying to differentiate what is real and what's not. I mean, are those the worms? Hence, you know, the agony, the screaming. He's on so many drugs at this point. And again, the wall is built. Do the worms actually want to try to like worm their way through the wall to try to break it down? I mean, again, his paranoia of the government and whatnot, is, is that part of it too? Like, does he... Does he not totally buy into it, hence the screaming? I mean, do you think that maybe at this point he's trying to reconcile something of sanity within himself? It's a pretty cool-sounding song, but the lyrics are difficult to swallow, for sure. Sam. Turn on the wall! So Pink is beyond all hope as we go all in on the Nazi imagery and even bring in the Holocaust. I mean, why the hell not? We even count the fucking song in in German, just in case you had any doubts. I despise the direction the story has gone in, 
and not all the marching hammers of hell can make me get into this. Pink is one messed up motherfucker. I say leave him behind his wall and let him die. Fuck this song. I want nothing to do with him. The following track is Stop, written by Roger Waters. Lou, what about this? He's at his breaking point. He wants to take off the uniform, leave the show. He's He can't take it anymore, and something needs to change. It's a transitional song, and it will lead us into, like, what is it? Act, the grand finale of Act 4. Shannon? Um, yes, I agree with that as well. Um, like I said before about the worms trying to worm their way. They're going through his brain. I think that's also metaphorical for the wall. I think there is a part of him that really does see a little, at least a, a, a point of reality. And it is time for him to stop with the lunacy. I mean, the paranoia, everything. Not everybody is out to get to him. Musically, I think it's, it's again, yes, a transition. But everything about this album for the most part, except for the, the, the main tracks are pretty much transitional. I think that's what it's about. It's about the human psyche, about how delicate and how weird and conformist, but yet um, you can mold it. You can change it. It's it's crazy when you think about it. So with Stop, I think it's totally, again, the song is in the word. I think he, he's, he's ready to stop. Sam. We're going to break this all down. We're going to destroy it at its very core, and we should not fucking do this anymore. Basically, what we're doing is uh, reaching enlightenment through pain and torture. He's trying for it. Everyone is trying for it. All of us are. Yeah, but yes. We all are. And he knows that. He knew that back in 1975. Professor P. Well... For me, it's unclear if Pink, the protagonist, was actually arrested or was having a moment of clarity where he asks what he has become. Similar to Roger's reaction to spitting in the fan's face, like a day later, he was asking himself, oh, my God, what what the hell did I do? Why did I do that? That's a fan. He paid to see me, and I did this, and, and what have I become? Have I been guilty all this time? Either way, this is where all the madness stops. And this is kind of where it it circles back to reality where what he calls the wall and what what made the album, this concept come forward with the band is at the same spot as this is going to he's going to do a lot of self-reflection. 31 seconds. Yeah, stop. Just stop. The penultimate track is The Trial, written by Roger Waters and Bob Ezrin. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Shannon, what do you think? The trial is about everything, about his, again, self-reflection. What, what has he done at this point? He, he doesn't like his wall. He wants it gone. He doesn't necessarily know how to tear it down either. I mean, he has all of these different elements that are playing into him from his childhood, through his adolescence, through his adulthood, through, through all of it, everything that he's gone through. It's an interesting track. <laughs> but I, I think, it, again, it, it's, it's him putting himself on trial about how, how he perceives himself and how others also perceive him. Sam. Crazy. Toys in the attic. Fuck them. Professor. So the prosecutor of the song is either a actual prosecutor or his conscience. Right. And he goes through everything that's caused him to build the wall. The schoolmaster, his ex-wife, his mummy. And then the judge comes down with some his sentence on him because he knows he's guilty. It gets muddy in here and messy, but this is this is part of the story and also part of how this album came about with Roger spitting on that guy. Lou. That's exactly it. And this is the point where Roger spits in reality where Roger spits on that fan. I I get it. Okay, this one's hard to swallow. Um it's fucking weird. It's it sounds like a play score. It's it didn't click for a long while. I used to skip it often, but I'd be goddamned if I didn't warm up to it. And uh, now it comes on when it comes on for whatever reason. I can recite it in voice accurate detail, every fucking word of it, to the horrified chagrin of my poor wife as she looks on in unamused <laughs> exasperation. <laughs> As I drive down the highway, too often making eye contact with her or to even total strangers in the next vehicle instead of the road, um, letting go to the wheel, gesticulating with my hands to uh, <laughs> getting little bits of spit on her as well as the dashboard and <laughs> acting out this pathetic little trial. Call the schoolmaster, right? It, you know, it's like an audio play. It, it, it's what you need at the end of this record. A big, healthy, what the fuck? To end an album that makes you say, what the fuck? Tear it down. It's, it's a play. And all plays need a grand finale to tie everything up. And this is where the characters come out and come back and bow and do, you know, reprise their stuff. I know he said he'd come to call the schoolmaster. Call his old lady. Call him. To reprise and take their curtain call. Crazy over the rainbow. It's catchy, catchy tune. <laughs> okay. I really, really do not like this song. <laughs> it comes on like a theatrical farce. And that's exactly how it plays out with Waters playing different characters we've already seen, as well as some new ones, all with different voices, and it has overblown orchestral elements that have Bob Ezrin's fingerprints all over them in a manner that Ezrin previously pissed off many Alice Cooper and Kiss fans. This is the climax of the album and the story, 
This is what we've been building up to. And it goes out on this fanciful, overblown courtroom drama that to me sounds disconnected from the rest of the album tonally. It renders all the bricks in the wall as goofy and inconsequential. Pink doesn't deal with these issues. Crazy. We're going there again, Roger. For fuck's sake, you've done this to death. Ad nauseum. And you've done it a lot better. The lunatic is on the grass. Shine on you, crazy diamond. This whole <laughs> album is about you, Roger Waters. And you're not crazy. You're just a douchebag. And that's where this all leads. Realizing that you are the fucking problem. You isolated yourself. The wall is your own making, you insufferable prick. And obviously, you do realize it. And hey, there are a couple things I like about this track. I actually do like the chanting, tear down the wall, right, Sam? Tear yeah. down the wall. And the crumbling sound effects, that's the tits. I just wish you'd found a better way to get there. This whole side four just chaps my bony pink ass, Roger. And so, with great malice and extreme prejudice, I sentence this track to be Aaron's Stinky Stinker! And that brings us to the final track, Outside the Wall, written by Roger Waters. Sam, how about the final track? All alone or in twos, the ones who really love you. Walk up and down outside the wall. So there, that's what I feel about it. Professor. Um, I hate this song. I hate the line, <laughs> Bleeding Hearts and Artists. I hate the way that they play it. I hate the way that they dance around after the song is over on stage. Um, fuck this song. <laughs> <laughs> Lou. Thank God it's over. <laughs> right? right? <laughs> I don't think I could have handled any more. <laughs> it's not bad. It's actually good. But God damn it. I want to die now. <laughs> all in all, it's a great record. But now I got to listen to some Beatles or Partridge Family or something. <laughs> Maybe go downtown and shoot up a TV display down at Costco. <laughs> Is this where we came in? Yeah. <laughs> Shannon. When I think about this song, it's like, it's kind of like a numbness, like being on methadone. Like, you know, it's like, okay, I realize there is a reality. I've done all this shit. The wall is down. And all of the stuff that I thought 
was real was completely unreal. And yeah, I can totally do with without it. Done and gone forever. Nope. I'm done. I don't want to hear anymore. I don't care. Mm-hmm. Just stop <laughs> talking, Roger. The wall came down. It's over. Now that the track by track is finished, we'll give our final thoughts and album ratings. For you new listeners, the rating is a zero to five system, with five being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a zero, which better run like hell before it gets shot. Shannon, give us your final thoughts on The Wall. My final thoughts are this, is that it is a incredibly personal and poignant trip, like as everybody is, well, especially you, Aaron, has said through Roger Waters' psyche. However, there are so many pieces of this album that I, I can relate to personally. I think all of us can. Sans the part that I was never a rock star and I never shot up with heroin. So, and I never built an actual wall. So thankfully, you know, I don't have to relate to that. I, Sam, you're going to be so disappointed with me, but I have to give this album a three and a half. There are a couple of tracks on this that I absolutely adore, but I like animals better than this album. I really do. So that's where I stand with it. Sam. This is one of the uh, records that I connected with from a very early age. It means a lot to me. It really does. All of the songs mean a lot to me. I, I can play a lot of them. brings me great joy that I'm able to play some of the riffs and little licks that uh, David Gilmore play. Man, this is a fucking five if I've ever had one. And what are we doing if this, if this is not a five? What are we doing? I'm so proud to uh, know this record and to talk about this record with you guys. So there it is. There, there it is. I'm so happy. Uh, I, I appreciate it. It's a fucking five. Professor Permi. Ah, this is Roger Waters' deep dive into himself. From his childhood, his mother, his school, his failed marriage, his being a rock star. It's a disassociated view of himself with a little bit of Sid and an amalgam of some other extreme cases of psychosis and isolation. It's his coping mechanism, faced with the same circumstances that Neil Peart had when he produced the song Limelight, and undoubtedly caused him to fiercely protect his privacy. Nothing new in celebrity society, look at Tiger Woods. His massive yacht is named Privacy. And there's Greta Garbo, J.D. Salinger, the list goes on and on and on. Pink Floyd is just, they just have taken some great concepts and just really examined them musically like no other band. Dark Side of the Moon, Roger and company examine the arc of life and in human spirit through the lens of proper English society. Human contact, passage of time, pressure of society, pressure to succeed, make something of yourself, the scarcity of our lives, aka the rat race, the macro view of our lives on the great gig of the sky, capitalism, mutually supportive relationship and the choices we have in life and ultimately the impact on our psyche and finally death. Wish You Were Here is a tribute to their friend Sid, the machine of the Western world, the capitalist hegemony, the music business, missing a close relationship, and looking at the arc of it all. Animals is Roger's myopic view of how the strata of society works. I agree with you on that one, Shannon. Animals is my favorite that they do, but they're all, all of these are awesome. This is a five for me. It has parts that may not work and that are a little bit clumsy, but... This, this is really an ambitious project to come up with. And for him to, to come up with a concept and then produce this, produce this on stage like he has, produce this as, in that shitty movie that they put out. <laughs> but um, this is, 
This is Pink Floyd. They are the absolute kings of concept albums and their structures. Period. End of story. And uh, this is the end of a very long run of uh, some really successful albums, even though this album basically destroyed the band by tearing at the fabric of their relationships and they never were quite the same, even though they put out that album after this. They've never been able to come anywhere close to this since. But I give this one a five. Lou. I question my existence after this. <laughs> <laughs> I need a good cry. Shot of some good tequila. Pink Floyd was always a moody listen, even the other albums. Uh, you always came out of it darker than when you went in, but <laughs> you know this just floors that to 10. Now they have 80 depressing minutes to tell this tale, and it wears heavy on a guy. It's not a bad record at all. It's an amazing record. And recording. This is like a reference recording. I give it a five, too. It doesn't have to be all dolphin sex and fairy dust and unicorn farts to be a perfect album. <laughs> Everything else Pink Floyd has done since the dark side all the way up to this has gotten a five for me. But then Roger began writing the same record over and over without someone to stop him or tell him no. Um, it worked for a while. This one the most because he had some resistance from Bob Ezrin and Gilmore and the others, but uh, he's never released another album with the success or heart of this one. In July 1977, on the final date of Pink Floyd's In the Flesh tour in support of the album Animals, an irritated Roger Waters spat on a fan at the Montreal Olympic Stadium. This was the culmination of long pent-up frustrations within Pink Floyd as they struggled to come to terms with their gigantic stardom. The band took a year-long break, during which time David Gilmour and Richard Wright recorded solo albums, Nick Mason did some production work for Steve Hillage, and Waters developed the proposed concepts for the next Pink Floyd record. When the Floyd reconvened at their own Britannia Row Studios in July 1978, Waters presented to the others two ideas for concept albums. The first, and the concept that the band went with, was about a rock star self-isolating himself after years of trauma with the working title Bricks in the Wall, and the second was about a man's dreams of sex and infidelity across one night in real time, which ended up as the basis for Waters' debut solo album, The Pros and Cons of Hitchhiking in 1984. To help with the huge workload of the Wall Project, Waters brought in producer Bob Ezrin, who assisted in fleshing out the story and wrote a 40-page script to get everybody involved on the same page. The album was recorded variously in France, New York, and Los Angeles, and was fraught with problems, from conflicts between Waters, Ezrin, and co-producer James Guthrie, to the seriously frayed relations between the band members themselves, resulting in Richard Wright leaving the band or being fired, depending on who you ask, during the sessions only to be hired back later as a paid sideman for the Wall Tour. The finished record took shape as an elaborate double album concept with orchestral arrangements on some tracks and numerous sound effects added throughout to give the album a cinematic feel. The minimalist album cover was simply a white brick wall with no text, and inside the gatefold were character drawings by cartoonist Gerald Scarf, 
who also created animations for The Wall tour and film. When it was released, The Wall became a smash success, buoyed by the single Another Brick in the Wall Part 2, which reached number one on both the UK and US charts, and it remains Pink Floyd's second best-selling album behind The Dark Side of the Moon. The Wall Tour was a massive undertaking in which Pink Floyd played the full album while incorporating pyrotechnics and special effects, with a highlight being a 40-foot wall of cardboard bricks that was built between the band and the audience. Unfortunately, tensions within the band were at an all-time high, and Waters traveled separately and stayed at different hotels from the rest of the band. The writing was on the wall indeed. As I said earlier, this is the album that finally brought me to Pink Floyd. I have a fondness for both double albums and concept albums, and I love the actual concept behind the wall. Despite the fact that it's very autobiographical to Waters himself, it's also super relatable, as I think most people have experiences with loneliness, depression, and self-isolation. I sure have my entire life. And this is Waters' baby, make no mistake. He wrote nearly the entire thing, and he dominates the record, as by this point he had taken full creative control of Pink Floyd. And the contributions from everyone else had to be on his terms. It's clear that Waters views this as his magnum opus. He wrote the film adaptation of The Wall, and when the Floyd broke up, it was put into the contracts that only he can play the full rock opera in its entirety. It's funny, but I hadn't listened to this in years, and some interesting things came to me as I prepared for this podcast. I was surprised at how much of this I don't care for. I've always enjoyed the big tentpole songs, but I didn't realize how much I strongly prefer disc one over disc two, and how much I dislike how the story resolves. I think I must have glossed over this in the past, maybe kind of checked out after Comfortably Numb, and maybe never paid enough attention to the rest of it. I almost wish this was a single disc where you somehow could pull Comfortably Numb over to disc one, kind of resequence it and end it on a bleak tone with the final completion of the wall. But alas, no. I used to think that this was my favorite Pink Floyd album. I said it was for the longest time, but not anymore. I give the wall a three. And don't get me wrong, this is still essential listening. I still enjoy this on the whole. But for me... The wall's missing a lot of bricks. And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast on all the podcasting platforms wherever you listen to them. If you like what you hear, please subscribe or follow the podcast and leave us a review. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com or also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast. We're also on Twitter at R4PodcastAaron and Instagram under R4Podcaster. If you feel the podcast has value and would like to make a contribution to support it, please head over to Patreon and the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews page and sign up on one of the monthly tiers. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. So for the R4 Podcast, I'm Aaron. I'm Sister Shannon. I'm Sam. And I'm Ray the Professor. And I'm Lou. See ya. Thank you. Why are you... Tear down the wall!
Holy fuck, we have 25 more tracks, guys. Holy <laughs> 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 shit. You guys are going to kill me. You, the Patreon, if you get your Patreons, you're not getting it early this week. <laughs> Oh my god. Alright. Well, let's continue. 